Hi guys, Aramethius here. Just a quick heads up at the start of the episode that we did have some technical hitches when we were recording this episode. Both audio and video were doing some quite strange things, uh, so some of it might be a bit strange. I have tried to clean as much of it up in post as I can, but I think some of it, particularly with Rels's audio, will still be in there. So I hope it's still understandable most of the time, but there might be some slight problems with it so, as you listen through. So I'm really sorry about that, and I hope it doesn't detract from your over-enjoyment of the episode. D20 Radio, your gamers roll. Welcome to the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny, your podcast guide to all places and plots exalted. I'm Aramithius. And I'm Rels. And as usual, if you have any letters to send us to threaten me that my anti-sidereal action will be punished, you can send it to wondrousatlas at gmail.com, with or without an E. As well, put some reviews down in whatever thing you're listening to us on, or attach it to a courier pigeon, or put it before a darkened mirror before chanting our names three times. And we have a drive through RPG link somewhere that will let you get the books that we talk about and give us a kickback for it. More yes. importantly than that, we've gone professional. We've got Ooh. a network. We have. Those of you who have just decided not to skip any of the intro stuff will have noticed the buffer for the D20 radio network that will have been on at the start of this episode. We are now part of the D20 radio network, so... Basically, that means next to nothing in terms of changing our content, but it also means that we will ever and anon be talking about some of the other stuff that's going on in the network. So do go and check all of that stuff out. Uh, There are some fantastic podcasts on there talking about a whole host of different RPG-related stuff, uh, mostly sci-fi related, but there are some really quite good Legend of the Five Rings podcasts, actual plays in there as well. There's something for everyone in the D20 radio network, so long as you're in the tabletop RPG space. And we also had the pleasure of going on to one of our colleague podcasts. I'm not sure if that's quite the right term, but one of the other podcasts of the network. And we had a chat with me and Steve Talk RPGs podcast about Exalted and how that is basically high-powered fantasy and all of the things that that means. We go on long, long rants about how fantastic Exalted is and the various bits of the setting that intrigue us. (laughs) You get to hear me go for the thing that I won't be able to do for many, many episodes yet where I rant about Autochthonia at length. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was about the one thing that got one of the Steves really interested was the notion of, ooh, Autochthonia exists. We can have spaceships in fantasy. It was just an absolute blast to chat with those two. And they their podcast has some really interesting things as well. They, they keep a very sharp eye on Kickstarters, do the Steves. And so it's a great place to go if you have a lot of money to throw at tabletop role-playing games because they do an excellent job of saying, ooh, this looks really cool. Go and look at this. It looks fantastic. <laughs> and just keeping abreast of the developments in the industry. So that's the Me and Steve Talk RPGs podcast. And by the time you get this, the interview will be well and truly out. There will be links to all of this, to the network itself and to the interview that we did in the show notes for this episode, or if you're watching us on YouTube, in the description down below. Today, we're talking about the Immaculate Order. 
Yes, we are talking about the Immaculate Order, the state religion of the realm, and the largest religion in creation with millions of followers. Not just inside the realm, it's worth noting. It does sprawl beyond it um, into many and various places. All of its kind of main centres of power and the hierarchy and the organisation are set on the Blessed Isle, but the religion itself kind of goes beyond even the threshold and kind of leeches out into the non-realm hinterlands. In brief, it is a religion built around exalting the dragonbloods to quasi-divine status, and in one interesting heretical case, actually divine status. Yes, it was basically begun during the Shogunate era, and basically just cooking up its own sort of legitimization of dragon-blooded hegemony in various places. The order itself didn't really exist then, but the Immaculate philosophy, or what would become that, is what was started then. And the order just kind of coalesced a bunch of pre-existing things. And while, in theory, it's separate from the realm... It, when the realm was founded, it was basically done on the understanding that the Immaculate Order would support it. There is now a lot of overlap between the realm and the Immaculate Order, right down to the point where some monks in the Threshold States, if the place is properly managed, which is a thing we'll get to, will enforce tribute payments to the realm because Immaculates. The thing that we are being very careful to have not meant thus far, probably because he's afraid of me going into a Mr. Crocker-style fit about it, <laughs> is whose fault this is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's the Siderials. It's always the Siderials. Now, yes, they didn't invent it whole cloth this time. It's implied in second that pretty much the only reason it became more than a niche minor belief was because the Siderials were his third, makes it a genuine religion that just happened to be a little bit subverted. Yeah, and But it's steered. still their fault, and they've still infiltrated almost every level of its decision-making body. Yes. If you want to be pedantic about it, immaculatism, or immaculacy, sorry, is not an invention of the Siderials. The Immaculate Order is very much a creation of the Siderials, and is there to enforce the goals of the Bronze Faction, which is the faction that says that the Dragonblooded should be running creation, and this is best for everything. Yes, they're useful pawns, and they are far less likely to build something that will blow creation up. I was going to say, even the sort of second edition ideal book basically says that the Bronze Faction isn't born out of any great love for the dragons, but more the fact that the Bronze Faction is the more palatable way of marketing the Star Metal Faction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's delightfully cynical. The power behind the throne stuff for the Sodiorals, which we will get to next season. <laughs> we should probably not derail now. So, let's talk a bit about theology and religious belief. Yes. Because that's, that's, that's what we came here for, religious studies lectures. Yes, absolutely. They believe in reincarnation. It's a Buddhist-style merit equals better reincarnation system, where the ultimate goal is unity with the elemental dragons in a quasi-Nirvana sort of state. But the best case that you can get while still being an individual is being a dragonblood, conveniently. Funny, that. And this, that the dragonbloods are the best thing you can be, is pretty much the one main, well, one of the two main non-negotiable things about immaculacy as a broad family of faiths, because it is quite adaptable to local tastes. As yes. long as Dragonbloods is the best that there is, and 
anathema exist and deserve to be treated accordingly. Those are yes. pretty much the only two inflexible points. Yeah, and everything else sort of works around sort of local customs, so you will get different flavours and various squabbles between monks, generally speaking, about what is or is not the correct way to do things, which you'd think would be quite dry theological debates and everyone going through notes. No, no, it's not. It's often fights. <laughs> it's often fights. It is monks doing kung fu duels to prove what um, what they're right, because if you have a proper level of spiritual enlightenment, according to Immaculacy, then you will have mastered your essence, which means that you will be able to use the Immaculate-style martial arts to the best of their ability. And uh, so. it just so happens to coincidentally mean that the type of exalt that is the absolute super best at doing martial arts is always going to get final say on how things go. Funny, Funny that. Funny that. <laughs> <laughs> This is going to be the recurring problem now. Uh, anyway, Cynic. The- I, I did not see that before, but you are absolutely right. Yeah. Souls are weighed by heaven in every life cycle, which is interesting in that it's one of the few immaculate points that you can outright disprove. Yes. Because <laughs> you can go there. They don't do that. <laughs> no, they do a whole bunch of other stuff. And the other big one that it doesn't like, it does not like you making contact with the dead. Ghosts existing is considered an affront to the perfected hierarchy. Which is an interesting little thing in that it... I'll keep bringing this up throughout the episode as we get to different points where it does. Because that lines up perfectly with a thing that Second hints at, that a lot of immaculate beliefs are write-overs from things people already believed in the first age and just had the names filed off. Because that's basically cosmologically true is that ghosts are an affront to the way reality is supposed to work. Because the underworld is not supposed to be there. It only exists because the Neverborn do, which was a mistake. Yes, absolutely. And it's something that you'll kind of see again and again, that Immaculacy will say stuff exists, but stuff is bad because it exists. That stuff existing is an affront to cosmology. And the kind of the big key to that uh, is... The, the perfected hierarchy has kind of a preordained structure as to how the world should be and everything should be instructed and tended and made to go towards how the world should work. This is that dragon-blooded are the pinnacle of all mortal life. They are set apart from the celestial bureaucracy to rule creation because it's not the place of gods to rule creation because they're just busy making the place tick over. And if we are going by the ideas that Immaculacy was founded after the Divine Revolution with all of the goals that the Divine Revolution inculcated into humanity and so on, then it's not the job of gods to run things because the gods didn't want to run things. The gods wanted to sit around playing the games of divinity all day and not doing a whole lot. And that's what they fought and the war against the primordials or ancients for. And so the gods are sort of set up almost an aside in the hierarchy because they're not part of the structure. They're stuff that should be be treated with care and not the really The celestial gods is the thing. We'll get into this more when we talk about Yushan, but there's kind of two tiers of gods. Technically three, but we're going to ignore the incarnate because they ruin everything. There are the celestial gods, the ones that get to chill in heaven, and the Immaculate Order kind of considers them as, an import- as a side thing. They're important but we don't worship them, they're just doing their thing. And then there's the terrestrial gods, 
who, despite being called gods, um, they get a rough deal of it. <laughs> yeah. Heaven thinks that they're unwashed plebs, and the Immaculate Order thinks that they're resources to be controlled. <laughs> yes, they really do get a poor deal on it, because the Immaculate Order will tend to basically beat up any terrestrial gods that aren't doing what they tell it to. The doctrine says that they are to be respected, but they must know their place because they're not part of the cycle of reincarnation, but they are part of the perfected hierarchy. And so they should know their place to not harass mortals for prayer and various other things. This manifests, however, as the uh, Immaculate Order and through it, heaven as a whole, because of how the Bureau works, yeah. basically being an extortion ring for the entire terrestrial host of gods <laughs> where you do what we say or you stop getting prayer which for gods it's not fatal they don't die mm -hmm. if they don't get prayer no nope. but it's kind of like if you were to go to a person and say you do what i want or i'm turning off the electricity to your house it's still a very pleasant amenity to have is prayer yes that sort of whole attitude sort of carries on with how they treat creation as well. The, the perfected hierarchy demands that peasants should obey their superiors and everyone should obey the dragon-blooded, pretty much without question. Uh, but everyone needs to respect the people underneath them as well. The flip side of it is that as much as gods are something to be respected and taken care of maybe they also need to respect their worshippers in theory the dragon blooded should do the right thing and act as righteous rulers and not abuse their station at all this goes right down to essentially standing up for the rights of people who have none yeah this is where immaculacy gets very very confusion because in terms of belief and practice it's kind of a general hodgepodge of every religion that's ever gone into china <laughs> and i'm specific with picking china mostly because the whole also being used directly by the state and the shadowy eunuchs controlling it is also a trope for how religions in China have not always, but quite often tended to play out historically. But yeah, we just we just yeah. replace the imperial household with the Siderials. <laughs> Although <laughs> we have relatively little about how things went down religiously when the Empress was there, but from what little we have, she also directly did this exact same thing with the Immaculate Order, wielding it like a sword and a cudgel when she needed to. Yeah, and she kind of had this sort of semi-divine slash actually divine authority to do so. But I, we can unpack that next time. I'm not calling Chejop divine. <laughs> That's fair enough. Immaculate monks, basically depending on how justified they think any uprising is, will either support it or suppress it. And often... Not off. Enough that it is noted in the books uh, will spark peasant uprisings when they think the dragons are misbehaving. Yes, because the dragons are the avatars of all that is pure and holy. They are living saints, and they need to act like it. If they don't act like living saints, then they have a problem, and that problem needs to be corrected, which, as we've mentioned, includes the use of force, because if you use force properly, you are mastering your essence, which means you are in touch with everything that means enlightenment and therefore are right and it gets very very again ancient chinese mandate of heaven where every unsuccessful revolution was horrible and evil and every successful one is proof that you were right yes uh, the phrase mandate of heaven is actually used in the books in order to justify the realm so a um, similar thing would happen i imagine that after the civil war the Immaculate Order will say, ah, oh, yes, it was the Mandate of Heaven that whoever was regent or claimant at the time lost, and then it was bestowed upon the victor. 
Emperor's regent. Who's declaring war on Tepet for Kuf? <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> we always talk about the Civil War. We're ignoring the guy who's sitting on the throne because literally every player is as well. Yeah, you don't need to <laughs> pay attention to him, really. Next up, we get a little but- bit Buddhist. All life begins in ignorance of the perfected hierarchy and needs to be guided by the wise. And here, I'm actually going to go and start taking bits directly from the books here. Second edition's Compass of Celestial Directions, the Blessed Isle, gives us some bits where it's directly trying to be Buddhism in terms of the noble insights and diligent practices, which are basically the sort of Ten Commandments, for use of a better term, of Immaculacy, where all beings in creation are dying and reborn, ascending and descending the road of enlightenment. Those who are exalted, by which they mean only dragons, are very close to the end of the road while insects and plants are near the beginning. Most sentient mortals are somewhere in the middle. The second one. As beings approach the end of the road, they approach the infinite perfection of essence that is the elemental dragons, who hold creation together. This is important. We're going to get to, in a few minutes, the distinction between elemental and immaculate dragon. Yes. That's going to get confusing. They venerate both of them, is the problem, but in different ways. (laughs) Third. Working in solitude and striving to surpass their lot in life, all beings in creation draw away from the perfection of the elemental dragons. Working together and accepting their present incarnations, all beings in creation mimic the elemental dragons and approach their perfection. I.e., sit down, shut up, obey the realm, and you're a good person. Yes. (laughs) The dragon blood who were disciples and children of the mortal incarnations of the elemental dragons are leading the immaculates towards that degree of perfection. Yep, dragons are good. The anathema, who reject the elemental dragons and obey only their own ambitions, are drawing creation <laughs> toward despair and ruin. Yep. <laughs> That's a big one. Then yes. the diligent practices, the things you do. Hear a recital of an immaculate text at least once a month, in the company of at least 17 other followers of the philosophy. <laughs> I don't know why 17 is the what? number. Why is 18 people the number? That's that's just confusing. Uh, 18 that's... is a quorum, my guys. <laughs> yeah, I would at least expect it to be a multiple of five if they're doing numerology properly, but yeah. Yeah, respect and honour spirits only according to the calendar and the specific rites set down by the Immaculate Order, giving each spirit its due only insofar as it serves the harmony of creation. Worship no spirit, elemental, small god, or anathema at all. Let's talk about the prayer calendar. (laughs) Yes, because prayer is dangerous because gods are flawed beings, is the understanding of the Immaculate Faith. And only the dragon-blooded have the spiritual wisdom and enlightenment to worship without restriction. This is going to be a common theme, that the dragon-blooded are enlightened enough to do forbidden thing regardless. But in this case, they can worship the gods as they see fit because they are enlightened enough to know how to best handle the gods. Everyone else needs to follow the prayer calendar, which is the case of you have to pray to specific gods on specific days as meted out by the Immaculate Order. And this is an explicit negotiation. Uh, it'll vary locally. There are very few gods that have creation-wide festivals. And so you'll get lots of local variances depending on what the local harvest gods are like or the local gods in general. Like if you're, 
undergoing harvest time, you won't pray to a general god of harvest. You will play, pray to the local field gods and get them to actually support you in your material needs and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's a case of this is where the sort of the control comes in that if gods are making noises the Immaculate Order doesn't like, then this will be filed away and noted and the Immaculate Prayer Calendar for the next few years will not include that god as much. It's also a carrot in the sense of you do what we like and we will give you more prayer. Yeah. Taking out the blackmail element of it, <laughs> it actually parallels sort of Japanese Matsuri custom quite a lot Ooh. in that You've got, here's your fixed calendar, do God X or Kami X on day Y, this is what you do, this is how you do it. When we cover Great Forks next season, that does it a lot more explicitly, mm-hmm. but like the prayer calendar as a whole, with that, we never get it confirmed where they're drawing inspiration from what, but it smacks more of something a la how they do it in Japan rather than anything else, if only because most mm-hmm. of the other, at least sort of East Asian polytheisms, tend to be a bit more well, Greco-Roman about it, of you don't have to do all of them. Whereas my understanding of the prayer calendar is you are, to some degree, obligated to worship all of the gods on the calendar. Yes, because that's kind of only fair, really, given that they only get it on the specific days. It's that everyone has to go along to the temple and so on, which is also another thing. We were talking a bit before the cast of how there were kind of shades of Catholicism within the Immaculate Order and just the idea of kind of holy days where everyone just downs tools whenever any particular saint's day comes up and yeah. just goes to church. That strikes me as a as a possible way of interpreting this. I mean, we've, not, we've got nothing yeah. specifically saying that that is the case, but I'd imagine that's the way the gods would want it, if I yeah. can put it that way. And also, some of the negotiation for prayer does happen very explicitly and is an actual negotiation, particularly for the more... It's it's not outright said, but it is the more powerful gods, I would assume, because in Numa, at the Nail of Truth, gods will go there to petition the order for prayer, and so they can kind of negotiate what they can Eat. receive and so on. I imagine that some of the more intense ones are things like uh, well, I don't know whether a lat would condescend to actually go there, but... They go to a lat. <laughs> yeah, the southern god of war and cattle has enough sway that he doesn't need to bother, but I imagine that that's where things The realm's like... biggest problem to be. Yeah, but no, the, thi- the things like uh, the Blessed Isles salt gods and that sort of thing, where they need to negotiate with how much salt they can extract and, and use because salt is so useful... I'd imagine that that's where the negotiations happen for things like that. You'll note we're missing some people because, uh, weirdly, worship of the incarnate is pretty much forbidden. Yes. Which is peculiar, given how much they're like, no, no, the gods in heaven are pretty good most of the time. (laughs) Don't worship those three. And the the cynic in me, once again coming out, is saying that out of the, I'm treating all the maidens as one. I'm making this a fate situation. Okay, so either three or seven, but yeah. Yeah, I'm treating them as the five who are one. Yes. Because that's how the game treats them. I'm pretty sure that's the one that they really don't want people praying to. Yeah. Because the thing with the Bureau is they're just as in the dark about what the maidens want as anyone else is, and the likelihood of any old schmuck getting communication for them is small, but never zero, and that could throw a spanner in a lot of the Bureau's plans. Yes, you don't want to kind of poke the thing that could absolutely disrupt everything that you want to go on. 
because so. Prayer to the Sun will get no response because the Sun's too busy playing Yu-Gi-Oh! And yeah. Prayer to the Moon will only get a facetious response, as far as I understand how <laughs> Luna works. Pretty much. Uh, although, Prayer to the Maidens is also even less likely to get a response than prayer to the unconquered sun as i recall because there's a line i'm paraphrasing slightly but it's basically that uh, the maidens will only leave the pleasure dome when there's something very serious going down that it, you know something is gone either horribly wrong or horribly right if one of the five maidens leaves the pleasure dome in heaven to that's what the maidens want you to think mm, yeah it's not like they have the ability to make it look like they're in one place when actually they're in another or anything like that. Mm. <laughs> this this yeah, is the thing again of just the maidens and the bureau are the CIA and you can take nothing any of them do at face value. Yes, that is true. But anyway, we are getting very, very sidetracked into yes. gods and away from religion. So, third diligent practice. Imitate in word and deed the honourable behaviours of the five immaculate dragons the mortal incarnations of the dragons of the elements, emulate the thoughts appropriate to your incarnation as decreed by the Immaculate Dragons. There is thought crime in Immaculacy. Fourth, obey the dragon-blooded, who are descendants and disciples of the Immaculate Dragons <laughs> and are so close to enlightenment that their commands cannot cause a soul to stray from the road. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, all right, lads. And yeah, finally... Yeah, no. Resist the commands of the anathema to the fullest degree of the abilities of your present incarnation, and do not fall into despair. <laughs> don't do what Solas say, and don't be sad. Oh, yeah, I can, I can kind of see that one. That don't despair is... Mm. I get what they're going at, or at least, no, I'm going to be generous in what I think they're getting at, because it's immediately followed up with, to the best of your abilities, i.e., if you break this rule or any of the above ones, don't freak out too bad. Especially with this one, we know Solars can do mind control. Yes, absolutely. And if I remember rightly, I don't know the full length of everything Catholic. I've never looked into the full delights of that particular dogma. But I'm fairly certain that despair is a sin in and of itself. So if you're going along with the Catholic parallels at any particular point, then yeah. that one would do those sorts of bells. Yeah. We should mention, by the way, that when we're raising the Catholic parallels, this isn't something we've pulled out of the blue. It's more the distinction between second and third. Second, yes. depending on who's reading it, seems to get pasted either as a broad swathe criticism of religion as a whole in a very early 2000s white wolfy kind of way, or in my more charitable breeding, because I am second edition's bravest soldier, they've made it very specifically. I read it as the Catholic Church, mostly because second edition Mouth of Peace is also a Pope figure. We'll get to that later. But you can also read it as early 2000s White Wolf. With that, um, I th let's we talk should, about anathema. Let's talk about the anathema. We've already done the, the last command, brought us onto the anathema. That should be enough of a segue for you. Um, yeah. They are basically any beings that go against the celestial hierarchy or the perfected hierarchy. And this is a thing that their very existence puts them at odds with the perfected hierarchy and they need to be wiped out. This tends to be in the cases of 
most types of being in creation. It's a bit of a case-by-case basis for quite a few of them. There are very few categories where everything is an anathema. So it's... Let's talk about the ones where it is the case. Yeah. Solars. (laughs) Lunars. Most Celestial Exalted will be tarred with the anathema brush to some degree or other. Those two, absolutely. Fair folk. Um, I'm pretty yep. sure fair folk and fairy fairy related things are yes. all universally anathema. Yes. Bad. But other than that, anathema is a excommunication sort of title. It's given and it can be taken away. Gods, notably, can become anathema and can become unanathema if they <laughs> behave. Yes. And you've got anything that sort of disrupts the proper functioning of society in some big way that they're obviously not going to step away from. So if you have particularly aggressive elementals, those particular elementals will be designated anathema and should be wiped out. Beast men, generally, I think, because they're associated with lunars, tend to be given the brand anathema. And there's various exigents as well that can be branded anathema depending on their behaviour. Exigents are a weird little edge case because... Their existence is is using the power of the gods in a way that isn't in line with the perfected hierarchy. And so their existence is a thing that goes against it by itself. But you can make up for it. You can try and repent and become a better person. And maybe you'll be granted a better existence in your next incarnation while the Immaculate Order watches your every move while you're an exigent. Yeah. I mean, again, the cynic in me comes with the fact of solars and lunars were a problem back in the first age because the anathema label is one of the few parts that I am willing to put my stake down and say invented whole cloth by the Bureau. Everything that is universally anathema is something the Bureau wanted gone even before the solars were kicked out. Okay. It's solars and lunars that we wanted out of the picture because we were doing a revolution. Fair folk, which were always the cosmic enemy. Yeah. And the undead, which are pretty much always a cosmic enemy as well. I don't know. I get the impression that it was much more a case of it was all assembled in the wake of the Great Contagion. And that's when the Wild Hunt started coalescing as well. Yeah, it's when they actually got the military capability to deal with them. But the beef with fair folk as a cosmic evil pretty much like when you read dreams of the first age i was wondering how long it'd take me to get to dreams of the first age it's the other <laughs> book i really like when you read dreams of the first age even though they weren't as big an immediate threat back then they were still recognized as the no no that's the big problem it's just that back in the first age it was also the only problem and the solars were so super duper good that you didn't have to worry about it too much yeah the fair folk have always been known to be an anti-reality force most people, 9 out of 10 respondents, agree that reality is something they would like to keep going on. The anathema label being a sort of invention of the Bureau, I tend to sort of go with if only because I can't think of anything that is anathema that Chejop wouldn't want to kill. Yeah, that's true. And it true. also then tracks with exigence where they are anathema or not dependent on how they're used because that's also kind of how the Bureau treats them. Because you get bits um, in the New Sidereal manuscript especially where They'll work with some exigents, especially when Heaven has made an exigent or two. <laughs> yeah, if they're doing what Heaven wants. Um, yeah. 
then it sort of gets... At that point, it gets political. And yeah, religion and politics is a fun, fun mix. We'll get to the politics of the Immaculate Order, but just yeah, bear that in Next mind. Next up, let's talk about the Immaculate Dragons because it gets confusing yeah. now. Oh, I would say while we're on the topic of the anathema... Oh, yes, the, the demon thing. Well, I would say that monks do know that solars and lunars are exalted, but... That's not something they tend to share too widely with the laity. That's something that you get exposed to as you go up in ranks within the order. The thing that they say here is that they are exalted, but they are corrupted by the essence that they possess. It's that solar essence is too perfect for a mortal frame, and so will it'll inevitably break down and something will go wrong. Uh, lunar essence is too chaotic and changeable, and so will warp it into something terrible, and that sort of thing. The, the the line that gets spun to the unwashed masses is that the solars and lunars stole their power from the sun and the moon, whereas... Not, um, not even but, necessarily strictly that. I mean, third, no. as written in the book, basically just says, solars are demons, don't ask any more questions. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. It's the idea that if anyone who isn't part of the Immaculate Order encounters anything supernatural that's causing problems, they're basically encouraged to think, assume it's a god and go and find a priest to deal with it. Yeah. So it's basically don't deal with the supernatural because you're not equipped to. Go and find the Order and they will deal with it for you. And it's just so convenient that that, again, helps reinforce that they get A, all the intel, and B, all of the decision-making prowess again. Yeah. Funny that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll move on to the Immaculate Dragons. So, first off, we're going to have to chop in half Elemental Dragons and Immaculate Dragons. Two different things. Both are holy in different ways. Yes. The Elemental Dragons are your Nirvana state. They are where you want to be. That's what you want to turn into one day, or join or fuse with, or I imagine there's about 50 billion different heretical sects talking about what specifically happens when you level up from Dragon-Blooded, because it's one <laughs> of the things that the Immaculate Orthodoxy doesn't care about that much. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Immaculate Dragons are saints, Buddhas, something in that remit. They are the mortal or quasi-mortal incarnations of the dragons. Yeah, but Bodhisattva is a good term. But... Bodhisattva is a good term, but I don't like to use it here mostly because Immaculacy... Immaculacy implies that you can, that any old schmuck, even a mortal, can become something that they outright call a bodhisattva in the second uh, edition books. Okay, yeah. Which then means that I have to render the Immaculate Dragons distinct because you can't just become Denard. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, th there are certain heretical sects that claim that you can or that you are the reincarnation of the Immaculate Dragons, but those tend to be heretical. <laughs> yeah. The official dogma says that they existed and they lived their lives around the time of the usurpation. There is actually a timeline, and they weren't all necessarily contiguous with one another. It was all sort of the time of the yeah the war against the Solars and all that sort of stuff. In reality, however, we've got two different stories. One and three say that they're agglomerations of several different dragon bloods from the time of the Divine Revolution to the overthrow of the Anathema. Second... And this is one where you can actually just fuse it with the first and third instead of making it competing with. Says that a lot of stories of the Immaculate Dragons are overwriting previous First Age legendary figures in a sort of, again, to take back the Catholic thing, pagan gods through to saints sort of transition. 
Yes, they do very explicitly Bridget. do that. Bridget, yes. We'll, we'll get to Bridget when we get to Heshiesh, because that's a very big example of where one story was explicitly stolen from a previous solar and associated with an immaculate dragon. Yeah, second edition basically says that all of them have that, and all of them tend to have it with about two or three different legends, usually from different places, because they basically sell it as a, this is how we got everyone worshipping the Immaculate Dragons, just like how, again, the Catholic Church got Ireland all right on board with this of, your old guys that you thought were cool and important, they're actually our guys, don't worry, and it's that sort of thing. They also each have an antithesis uh, that's openly acknowledged to be figurative and basically a moral lesson. Yeah, and they are just basically behaviours. They they all feel like the same sort of behaviour to me, but I'm sure we'll we'll get to that. Because what we'll do now is we will go through each of the Immaculate Dragons and everything that each of them represents. So first up, we have Dunnard, the Arbiter of the Immaculate Complaint, Immaculate Dragon of Water. Dunnard was a youth with the strength of spirit to swim to the bottom of the ocean to lock away the anathema forever. They are noted to be transgender, and so this is where you get quite a bit of the Immaculates supporting um, transgender identities and that, that being a legitimate thing within the realm. That's because Dunnard is a transgender individual. So that's where that all comes from. They are associated with challenge and persevering against all odds and that sort of thing. They challenge themselves by hardship if you're devoted to Dana'ard because that's supposed to kind of bring you closer to what Dana'ard is by sort of yeah. emulating what they did. Second also adds into that that they are the, for use of better term, dragon of independence, not in a self-reliance kind of way, but in an in what I'm pretty sure third took and transitioned into the transgender support thing of self-expression, personal freedom, non-reliance on an outside force. The Paragon of Danard, I'll get to what they are, they are later, their whole job was basically to make sure that the Order didn't get too dogmatic in what it made the individual do. Yes, and I should point out that Danard's myth is something close to what third is presenting as the truth or and even previous editions that Dunnard had the strength of spirit to kind of swim to the bottom of the ocean and seal away the anathema in their prison that is pretty much what happened there's just no record that Dunnard or anything approaching Dunnard is the thing that did it so you're telling me that in addition to them writing over solars with the immaculate dragons and overwriting dragonbloods with the immaculate dragons that they might be overwriting siderials with yes. the Immaculate Dragons, which, given that the Siderials like to write themselves out of history, tracks. Yes, it absolutely does. And in Dunnard's case, with the way that it's written in Third, it's also covering up some of their failure, because in Third's telling in the Siderial Manuscript, it's a lovely tale, this. I absolutely adore it. They took the solar exaltations and hid them in the Mask constellation, which they accessed by sailing west and sailing into the reflection of the constellations in order to get there. And so you do still have the swimming to the bottom of the ocean, which again, which winds you up with being in the sky. That's very Egyptian. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Dunard, sorry, I think I've been mispronouncing it, spelt D-A-A-N-A apostrophe D. Dunnard. Yeah, it's an apostrophe that we're, no one's quite sure what they were meaning by it. I cannot think of any language where that apostrophe being there does anything, unless High Realm has the most unholy phonology in all of linguistic history. 
Yeah, but it it sort of feels vaguely like an Egyptian name if you get me to look at it. I'm not a linguist, but it, it has gives me that sort of vibe. Yeah, to me, it reads as realm nonsense in the same way of Venif of where did you get this from? <laughs> Whereas the others, you can actually pin down a feel for. Their antithesis is the unmanly or unworthy babbler, uh, who just wants everyone else to solve all of their problems. The thing about the antitheses that I want to float here, not confirmed anywhere, I don't think they're an object lesson to the masses. I think they're an object lesson to the dragons, mostly because the one thing that you say, oh, they all look like the same sort of behaviour, yeah, but they look like the different aspectual manifestations of how dragons will misbehave when they're in power. Oh, so this is an aspect of kind of the dragon's great curse. To a degree. Not even necessarily that, just behaviours they don't want in the dragons that are sort of stereotypically associated. This mostly comes, I will be honest, from Heshiesh especially, whose antithesis we'll get to. Heshiesh and Mela are the two sort of big ones that make me think, oh, this is a criticism of dragons in a position of rulership, of a don't turn into this, and a very subtle, if you start behaving like this, this is when the monks come over to kick you in the face. Yeah. We should probably get to Heshiash at this point. The reciter of loud prayers and efficacious hymns, the Dragon of Fire, uh, supposedly only used his powers once to incinerate all the corpses of the dead anathema so that they wouldn't rise as hungry ghosts. Which is just a very, very noble thing to do. He's held up as an example of careful husbanding of resources and be and just being kind of careful and prudent in your dealings and those sorts of things, which is something that young dragons particularly will struggle with and fire aspect dragons in particular will struggle with. So Heshiesh is kind of seen as a totem of moderation in that respect. And that story serves as a useful object lesson. I like the stories of the the Immaculate Dragons because they're either interesting bits of history right over or interesting object lessons for people. That's how you stop ghosts from happening. If you are having to listen to an immaculate text once a month with 18 of your friends, then that's something that will probably be drilled in from a very young age of, if there's corpses out, burn them. Then you won't get ghosts. It becomes a nice little object lesson that gets drilled in by the church. Yes. Oh, and before we get too much further, I probably should point out some heretical worship that happens for each of them, because because the Immaculate Dragons are just such big figures, they get worship themselves, even though they don't really personify anywhere. And generally speaking, the portrayal of images is forbidden to everyone apart from Dragonblooded. But Dana'ad, they get her worship from sailors and coast dwellers because, yeah, sea god is basically the thing there and occasionally gets claimed as a patron for transgender individuals um, as well as objects of direct worship. Uh, Heshiesh is obviously worshipped by dragonbloods regularly who want restraint and that sort of thing. There's very few mortals will directly worship Heshiesh because the kind of things that Heshiesh does is a very dragonblooded thing that you've literally got an occult charm that lets you put the spirits away peacefully and cremate them properly. So it's something that's very tied to dragon-blooded essence and dragon-blooded behaviour in a way that the other immaculate dragons isn't, really. Mm. Uh, and his antithesis is the illiberal churl, who hoards things without reason and follows traditions blindly without understanding them. Just point at any house you like. Pretty much. <laughs> All of them. 
<laughs> and yes. arguably, just to get a bit eyebrow wriggly, the Immaculate Order itself nowadays. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Heshesh is also kind of the Immaculate stand-in for the one who discovered sorcery. Bridget. Bridget was a solar who discovered sorcery by going to the five poles of the world and getting given something by uh, various folk who lived there and said, you are destined to become the patron of sorcery. This also ties in quite well with Heshiesh's doesn't use their essence because Heshiesh can still do magical things and they can attribute it to sorcery uh, rather than their essence as such. Yeah. Uh, and also... This one is one of the ones that's made explicit even in first edition instead of, instead of mostly in second. And it's also the point where it's most blatantly obvious that they're trying to make them the Catholic Church. Yeah. Because they called her Bridget, which yeah. is a, an Irish saint that was an overwrite of a previous thing that was pre-Christian as well. Because subtlety yes. does not become early White Wolf. <laughs> Yeah, no, the, Bridget was in there right from the get-go. That um, yeah. the, sto- the story about um, how she discovered sorcery was in the Book of Three Circles, so mm. that was a very, very early thing. He- and that getting incorporated into Heshiesh is just immaculate doctrine seizing now, it. Now let's talk about Mela, my favourite heretical worship uh, victim. <laughs> the yes. petitioner of clouds accordant to the call of battle. Immaculate dragon of air, she's the oldest one. He, she, oldest one. Third edition makes a lot more of the Immaculate Dragon's pronouns fixed. Second gets variable with all of them because they keep saying it changes from story to story again as proof. <laughs> again as proof yeah. of there's lots of stories being brought together here. Mm. Yeah. That they're all very syncretic. Mela introduced the foundations of the mastery of the Immaculate Forms, the sort of martial arts that they did, and made winds to protect against the wrath of the Anathema. The second most worshipped dragon heretically as a patron of warriors and granter of wisdom, and notably that like, most of House Tepet worship Mela, and probably still does. <laughs> yeah, quietly. And also various cults in the north tend to be um, kind of Mela-ish in terms of their direction. Because they're close enough to the pole of air and they used to be governed by Tepet. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely it. Nunma gets called out of the, there being Mela cults there, despite the fact that being a seat of early immaculacy. Mela's antithesis is the sickly whore who squanders gifts selfishly rather than sharing with the community. Again, point at any house you like. Yeah, and here we get the bits where I think they kind of double up a bit because the antithesis of Heshiesh is someone who is hoarding things. The sickly whore is hoards gifts without sharing. So, uh, no, uh, See, I read these as different. I see the illiberal chill here as... Here's one hoarding things without reason and following traditions blindly. I read that more as, let's say, you've got your dragon Jim who really, really likes coral and is a decorative material or whatever and just starts gathering all the coral. Whereas Mela is, I'm hoarding all the food and you're not getting any of the food. It's a question of hoarding things because you're putting pointless effort into collecting bits and pieces and getting obsessive, which is another dragon trait, versus just blatant greed and disregard for the community because Mela then becomes a sort of thing of because the antithesis is anti-communitarian Mela becomes very pro-communitarian dragon as good shepherd of the people sort of thing. Yeah, that also ties in very well in terms of 
how the breaths structure themselves because the breath of Dana Ard is community development and disaster relief and that sort of thing um, as an administrative wing of the order. So, yeah, that ties in quite well. Next up, Sextus Gilus, winner of the silliest name competition and he who hath strewn much grass, the immaculate dragon of wood. Which is basically, yeah, he has lots of wild oats to be sowing. He replanted the forests after the devastation wrought by the war against the anathema. My man's just a regular dragon Paul Bunyan. I love him. He's an exemplar of stewardship, and he's the most common one to be worshipped heretically because there's famine relief, prayers for children, uh, and also all of the sex. <laughs> yes. Uh, because but- wood. <laughs> well, Which is wo- both a pun and also just fitting with what wood aspects are like. <laughs> yes, life, fecundity, and whatever else. Or just a pun, depending on how you want to spit it. It's your choice. <laughs> yes. Um, antithesis, then, is the inconsiderate horseman who rides in the ruts of the road, giving himself easy passage, but making it worse for any who follow after. Or in translation, what monks are saying to the dragons, you're a dragon. You don't need to be lazy. You're superhuman. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> it's just, yeah, that one is just help everyone else out please again the communitarian side of things which tying it back to the breaths and the breath of sextus gilis is the hr department so yeah let's all get along let's work together next up finally we have pasiap he who illuminates both worlds with majesty and power the immaculate dragon of earth who was the last one to emerge at the end of the war with the anathema and he basically taught everyone secrets of geomancy and how charms work. So, dragon-blooded power is all down to Passiap. Don't ever read a history book, guys. You will yep. not find evidence of dragons existing and using charms before the war with the anathema. Passiap taught us how to do it after the war, I promise. <laughs> Slight incongruity there. This, it's why I absolutely adore that, because it's the single... I treat that as deliberate instead of an oversight, as the, again, the devs being like, yeah, if anyone wants to start having questions of the faith, this is where they begin, because that doesn't add up. <laughs> Not at all. No. They're basically devoted to things like any who labour to perfect an art or a skill, and then sort of pass it on, because Passiap, as well as being connected to good, honest toil and that sort of thing, also taught people things and illuminating worlds, illumination and teaching and all that symbology. Because it's the Dragon of Earth, it's about continuity. And That's... if you are the end of it, then you are not the, uh, the fertile soil from which more can grow. I'm, I'm great. Yes. I'm turning into an immaculate monk as I go along here. By the end of the episode, <laughs> all my hair will fall out. My energy over here will turn into tea. <laughs> heretical worship of Pasiap tends to focus on him as a spiritual teacher and basically finding out truths and learning and all of that good stuff as well as being a patron of architects and a guardian against the anathema that last is probably where most of the worship comes in from yeah is a spiritual teacher okay you'll get a few a patron of architects you'd think you'd get a few but the problem is most architects are Nemon who are viciously devout and won't go heretical about Although, it. Although, in fairness, I would imagine most Pasiap worship within the dynasty probably happens in House Nemon. if you're going to get also the heretics. True. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, but Guardian Against the Anathema, that's where you're going to get people who are like, mm-hmm. yeah, I just saw that Luna turn over a village. Help. 
Yes. Uh, His antithesis is the ostentatious peasant who gathers up knowledge and amasses wealth but does not pass it on. Again, we have a hoarder for about the third time. Well, they're phrased differently enough that I can contrive ways of different things, but also dragons are notoriously greedy. (laughs) They might just need (laughs) to say the same thing three times. Mm, But also the ostentatious peasant reads like just a burn singularly of House Ragara and no one else. (laughs) Oh, wealth and secret knowledge without passing it on. Hmm. Hi, Ragara. (laughs) Yeah, funny that. (laughs) You are a religious evil. (laughs) Good. Now let's talk about some heresies. Yes, we're veering towards heresy. First of all, we have the heresy that is not a heresy. I will say this every time. Well, it's not always a heresy. It's It should be another religion altogether. But the hundred gods heresy is a catch-all term for worship of any gods without immaculate oversight, not according to the calendar pr- promulgated by the Immaculate Order. Uh, this means basically most religious festivals that aren't overseen by monks will be banned and labelled as part of the Hundred Gods heresy. And so anything that is outside of the prayer calendar that's in, in a place that the realm controls is part of this heresy. Um, the, the name goes back to a revolt that happened quite a few centuries before present day. We don't get any more details than that that I can find. There may be some existing somewhere, but I haven't managed to dig it up. I know you very much, it's not a heresy, it's, probably, it's a whole different family of religion. Yes. Anyone. I raised to you the reason they're calling it a heresy, because kind of one of the big things about immaculacy is it gets, not to go too deep into Buddhist theology, but it, it gets a bit Buddhist where it assumes that everyone is Buddhist and just doing it wrong as a universal uh, state. Okay. Yep. Uh, and the fact that they have literally the biggest empire on the planet as all immaculate, it's there is no such thing as an other religion. They're all heresies because everyone, by being in the perfected hierarchy, is immaculate, even if they're doing it very badly. Right. That. That makes total sense. Yeah, okay, I can get on board with that. Just to clarify, the reason I was saying it's not a heresy is because the technical definition of a heresy is someone who is doing the religion wrong while claiming to be part of that religion. And so if you're just worshipping a god and, and you're saying, that oh, this is nothing to do with immaculacy in any way, shape or form, then it's not a heresy, it's another religion. But yeah, yeah if uh, the Immaculate Order is claiming to be Catholic in the truest sense of the word, in terms of universal, then yes, it can claim everyone not worshipping according to the Immaculate Order is just doing it wrong and is therefore a heresy in the technical sense. Yeah, and Great Forks is often touted as poster child for the hundred gods heresy because there's well over a hundred gods there despite it not being particularly immaculate in any way shape or form if you want a cleaner way to sell to players hundred gods heresy is basically just the label pagan it Mm -hmm. it can mean literally anything from a whole swathe of unrelated things but our religion thinks that it's not as good and it's more primitive and bad yes Mm. yep okay there's also another heresy that the dragons will eventually return to creation. The Immaculate Dragons will come back, uh, but this will be as a herald of the end times because they are coming back as their antitheses. Immaculate millenarianism, yay! Yeah, it's just... My, the funniest part about this is it doesn't even make sense as a doomsday cult because we've just covered all the antitheses. None of them are particularly threatening. They're just going to sit down and do nothing. 
Well, they, you can almost sell it as sort of a vampire type thing, as in they kind of suck all of the good things out of creation and keeping them to themselves or just squandering them and everything else. So it could just be, in the sense of it kind of being an, an end times thing, it just could be that the world will eventually become barren and useless and just a husk of its former self and die because the antitheses are doing bad things, not that there will be some great cataclysmic battle or whatever. I do like that one because then it tracks, can actually consider Old Man Ragara to be proof that it's true. <laughs> yeah. And that does also tie into a few heresies that you'll find where people will claim to be the reincarnations of the Immaculate Dragons. A Mela reincarnated seems to be a particularly popular one when you look into various books that a random dragon-blooded will just say that they are a reincarnation of a dragon and try and do a thing. That's, um, if I remember correctly, one of the parts of the origin story for the Forest Witches. Yeah, and it usually ends with Immaculate Punk killing. Next up, we get to my favourite heresy. And get your cameras out, everyone, because I'm about to, without any qualifications, gush about something Bird did without talking about Second at all. Wow. Let's talk about Prasad, and let's yes. talk about the Pure Way. Right, the Pure Way is a heresy for the Immaculate Order that exists in Prasad and basically nowhere else. It takes the premise of the only dragons are spiritually good boys enough to worship gods freely, and elevates that to the say that only dragons can worship gods at all. Humans, then, should instead worship the dragons directly, who can utilise that worship and prayer appropriately. This just means the dragons are gods, and has resulted in a dragon-blooded cast of god-kings, which is kind of the foundation of why Prasad is such a beautiful mess. We will get to Prasad in due time, and the entire Dreaming Sea region, which is my... The thing I adore the most about Third is just that entire yeah, area. It is um, beautiful. Prasad is a big old popular tourist spot, however, so that means that Orthodox Immaculate Monks routinely turn up and argue with Pureway Monks in the streets, with extreme prejudice and violence. Yes. Yes, it basically comes down to Immaculate Monks having martial arts duels with each other over theology debates. And because, as we said, the strength of your martial arts implies that you are spiritually better than whoever you're fighting, then, yeah, if you win the duel, then obviously you are right. The one tiny problem uh, is that, with my understanding of how the Dreaming Sea works, no Prasadi is fighting fair. Uh -uh. The Dreaming Sea is absolutely chock full of fun magical toys. Yes, depending on quite where they're going to pitch their fights, they could oh, be some true. distance if you're off in away Kampahar, from... If you're yes. off in Kampahar, which is in the middle of nowhere, I'm assuming this is all happening in Champur. Champur is the coolest city in all the nation. Yeah, it's, yeah well, Cha um, Champur is the only one that's kind of highlighted as um, Prasadi as such, isn't it? I can't remember whether Kampahar is part of Prasad or not. On the map, the, the label Empire of Prasad is just above Camp the Haar, so I kind of tacitly assume that it's hard. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, I just can't read. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, Champur is what everyone thinks of as Prasadi because it's the most messy. Yeah. Whereas Camp the Haar is, it's there, and it's probably more functional, but also it's not Champur with its infinite gloom because they, they cut deals with a sea demon. <laughs> <laughs> Champur yes. is wonderful. When we get there, I will be rambling it in intense entity. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about the books. Yes. 
They were written by the dragons, all witnesses to their actions. And when we say they, we're talking about the immaculate texts here. These yes. are function as sort of a collection of scriptures for it's, the immaculate order. They're closer to, again, how the Dharmic religions tend to treat texts rather than... Very, very Buddhist. There's a near-infinite number. Yep. And they're either written by the immaculate dragons or those who witnessed their actions. Apparently... Uh, like Chejo, he witnessed the dragon once. Yeah, oh, a lot of them are written by Chejo, <laughs> not directly, uh, but on his order. Yeah, this is this is where it gets fuzzy, and you get differences with the editions. But and at least cause... a handful of them are pornographic. We've covered this before. Yes. <laughs> Tepper Fokuth having his time with. Yes, this is one thing that's said explicitly that although a lot of them do cover things like religious instruction and myths about the Immaculate Dragons, uh, there are quite a few of them that are in there just because they contain wisdom. And so this could entirely just be practical stuff or you've got your Song of Songs equivalents and that sort of thing where the links to overall doctrine in other texts is a bit more tangential and it gets gratuitous but then you've also got the ideas of tantra and everything else getting muddled in as well and yeah you get erotic scripture hey Fokuf, what's the, what's the deep meaning in there i'm reading it for the plot i swear <laughs> <laughs> across editions you differ on how much you've been tinkered with by the bureau third yep. seems to have hit the case of they barely tinkered with it at all and they subtle mechanisms uh second went with the fact some of them are genuine some texts are whole cloth written by the bureau and first pretty much just says every single text is written by a sidereal. Yeah, it's it's gradually got more realistic in that regard. And another wrinkle that third adds is that it's also the case that over time some dragon blooded have altered the texts, that it's not quite as definitely holy scripture is as concerned with the words as Abrahamic religions are. And so kind of adding new layers of meaning and so on is something that is a bit more possible. Quite how far those meanings will be transferred will depend on quite how active your scribes are in going from temple to temple, bringing these things and promulgating your new interpretations, and quite how good they are at their martial arts when they inevitably get challenged on it. But there's the idea of the, the Immaculate Text being much more of a sort of a living corpus in third than there was previously, that those things that are designed by the Siderials and written explicitly to reinforce dragon-blooded hegemony are pretty much... Uh, they are very carefully done and they are written with the understanding that you will have centuries of, of dragon-blooded scholars pouring over them and critiquing them and so on, so they don't I, do big, flagrant things. I cast and imagine a lot of the written directly by Siderials are going to be your diatribes against the souls that conveniently provide you with things you can tell the masses they are instead of exalts. And it's because that sort of thing, scholars will look over them, and if it's a big angry diatribe about how they are the worst thing ever, no one's going to complain too badly, even if there's things that don't hold up quite because the heart of it's good. Uh, <laughs> Depends. I'm pretty sure there will be some theologians somewhere that will quibble. Oh, they're always their job. Uh, but they, I can't imagine as a whole they'll get overwritten, thrown out when it's things they are out. And likewise, 
the other thing that we can't underestimate here is the impact of the Empress. Because, again, never directly stated as such, but let's be honest, she did the exact same thing. She was quite buddy-buddy with Chair Jop, and I'm pretty sure he would have told her, hey, look, this is, this is a way you can do this. And we'll get to it when we start talking about how they operate politically. She was the only thing that could actually check the mouthpiece a lot of the time. And part of me really sort of thinks that that includes on matters of scripture. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, now we've kind of given you the background to what the Immaculate Order is based on, we can now actually think about the Order itself. Now you know what they're saying and how they're saying it and kind of the background theology, we can get to the structure of the thing. Um, yeah. We've already said that the Immaculate Order claims to have been founded by the Immaculate Dragons during the rebellion against the Anathema. What really happened was that they were founded during the Shogunate. They basically kind of grew up as the Dragon Blood became the top dogs of creation and various tales that were spun before started to be kind of associated with dragon blooded and dragon blooded started to amass all of the socio-religious capital if you like and so it it's just sort of snowballed from there and they kind of built themselves up on various allegories talking about what various dragon blooded did and it just and it grew it grew from there got grabbed by the bronze faction as a convenient way to peddle their particular worldview and it went from there nowadays and i tend to assume that back in the shogunate days this really wasn't the case this only came about with the realm nowadays run centrally but with lots and lots of sects and divergences that are pretty much just ranging from actual abate to to just paying lip service to the mouthpiece yeah, it also depends on how far up the chain of information things get because it's got quite a structure in how information and everything flows from the centre to the temples on the outskirts and back again, and we'll, we'll get to that. But if it's something that's kind of quiet enough that it's not something worth reporting, then it's not something that will appear on the radar, so to speak. Again, it's in theory separate from the realm. Back in the days of the Empress, it just wasn't. Uh, and nowadays, no. it's kind of tied up and intertwined in a weird and slightly broken way because the Empress going missing made everything break down. Yes. And it's almost sort of de facto tied at this point because uh, most of the Immaculate Faithful with social power are dynasts. So they're the ones that are going to be kind of enforcing it. And it does provide a degree of social glue with the realm as a whole in a way that the great houses don't really because peasants will rely on monks to intercede with gods as we've talked about they also provide more general forms of advice and so on you will get some quite competent geomancers um, within the order for example various ceremonial functions uh, the monks will cover they also are the biggest single provider of education within the realm and therefore within creation and so they will be there because they are the schoolmasters and so on they are also just seen as because being wise is something that they aim for then kind of the house matriarchs will often rely on the order to a degree for just general advice 
And when folks join the order, they're not encouraged to cut ties with their family. They will maintain contact. And yeah. so they will maintain those sorts of more casual ties of, I think you should do this, or um, according to X scripture, when Mela did this, it, this happened. And so that that's what should follow here, sort of advice that can be made. So there are lots of kind of fuzzy, subtle ways that the order just sticks within the realm. You see what we meant when we said it might be theologically many things, but organisationally it's Catholic? Yeah. <laughs> uh, which ties even further when it's described as basically a force of nature in most of the established areas of the realm. You can align with it or not, but it's not a political rival. You can't touch it. Um, and it, it opens and closes the doors for you. Yeah, if you want to go with what the Order is saying, then yes, they will make sure that you have the right sort of conversations to meet people and those sorts of things. If you want to go against the Order, then it's going to be a bit hard for you. But yeah, In the messed up pre-unification Italy that is the realm, <laughs> this is the Pope. Yes. The Order is actively working to try and get the world to comply with the impacted hierarchy and will use any means to get it to do so. I put an asterisk after that, if only because the order works against its own interests a lot because heaven is involved. Mm -hmm. There are yeah. Again, third is a lot softer on because third doesn't like talking about sidereals. <laughs> Even ignoring the gold faction because the gold faction are rogue. We can accept that. That's fine. They're a different thing. Second had areas where the sidereals were quite deliberately keeping out of the realm's grasp because they were doing things that they didn't see. I'm trying to remember which book it's from. I want to say it's one of the Compass of Terrestrial Direction ones, but there is a case of a straight-up bronze faction for use of better in Black Sight in the far north that they deliberately make sure the realm doesn't get near because goal is that this thing isn't seen by anyone. Uh, yes. Yeah, I remember. I remember. I can't remember the name, but I know, yeah, I know the thing you know you're the talking about. about. That's the sort of yeah. thing I mean when it's saying that they're working whole, they will go against their own interests just because they have SIDs. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say it's going against their own interests, but the Immaculate Order is becoming its own thing independent of its masters in some ways. Yeah. With its own set of interests. As we before with the school masters, it's the biggest educator. Um, it teaches. Again, uh, this one tracks with Buddhism as well, actually, so we this isn't just them being careful. Like, if they control what knowledge is available and will ban all heretical texts. They do big book burnings. Yeah, and they will tend to get the people who own them to be the ones doing the burning. So I kind of see this as a case of, you didn't know this thing is heretical, we will explain how it's heretical, and then you will feel incredibly guilty and deal with it yourself. Very Buddhist. Very Buddhist. The people are imperfect, but ultimately good as a person. Yes. The truth of what's in the burned books doesn't actually matter. <laughs> It's basically the case of, is this going to destabilise the perfected hierarchy? Yes or no? It, regardless of whether it's true, its potential for causing disorder is the thing that will get it banned and burned. This is why the SIDs haven't been exposed yet. Yeah. Because even if the Order as a whole is surprised by it, and even if the bulk of Immaculate didn't like it, with that being the way things go, they would still suppress it. Yes, it basically gives you a tool to suppress whatever you need to suppress to maintain the status quo. Yeah. Let's talk about monks. Yes, who are basically the foundation of the order. Uh, we talk, we've talked about monks as sort of the basis for it. Monks, priests, 
and abbots and all the rest of it. There are a whole bunch of titles which we'll get to, but monks is sort of the foundation stone, and I'm not sure there's much of a distinction between monks and priests at a basic level. Very, very Buddhist. Forsake worldly pleasures to see the immaculate dragons, all about humility, celibacy, poverty, dietary restrictions that go up as you become monkey. Celibacy is a good way to make sure that if you had kids as a dragon blood that you don't really want it anywhere near the line of succession, you can shunt off to a monastery. There we go, we're getting Catholic again. And their poverty oaths aren't aren't poverty poverty, but again, very Buddhist, don't get attached to any material things. Yeah, they're sort of allowed to have material possessions to a degree, but most of the things that they interact with on a daily basis, if you're a monk, will be the possessions of the monastery or temple that you are part of. And yeah. that will go right down to things like clothes eventually. Like we said, the diet gets restricted as it up to the point where the highest level monks eat only rice and drink only tea, which basically means that the highest level monks are all dragons because that's the only way you survive that. <laughs> well, that's kind of a given anyway. We'll get to that with the hierarchy, but pretty much above the third coil, you're not going to get anyone who isn't a dragon. They've got an obligation to out heresy through education or ultraviolence, and yes. they're all pretty good at martial arts. That's part of being a monkey is doing martial arts. Yeah, you get a ridiculous training program of years of martial arts training and theological training, which will eventually become one and the same thing where you are giving philosophical arguments while you are doing martial arts catas. Yeah. And again, we following through on this, we get back to this in the doll, the guy, the dragons that the, the dragon that the Sids are trying to groom to learn SMA. Um, yes, I think doll. Yeah. yeah, go back listen to all our earlier episodes if, we're, if I've mislabeled it the doll. But the the fact of that the Siderials are actually trying to teach Siderial martial arts to some poor dragon blooded immaculate, which is adorably insane. Oh, um, it's just it's just because not gonna that go is where the whole martial arts and philosophy stroke theology becoming one is actually true. Because sidereal martial arts are in a way that makes the brain hurt. I love karate chopping the economy. That's a thing you can do. We'll get to this next season. Anyway, yes. you're not cut off from your family, like we said. Um, and nominally, this is a post for life. But you can be thrown out for gross misconduct or at request. That's to say, you can ask to leave. You're basically given a month to change your mind if you request to leave, but it's not something that an awful lot of folks tend to do because it basically means just kind of crawling back to your family and pretending however long you spent in the order didn't exist because the order will take it that way. The order will just say, right, just strike your name from any records and just pretend like you were never a monk in the first place, apart from to keep tabs on you, because they don't want you abusing anything you learned as a monk. And we'll make sure that that you don't by whatever means they can. And this is where the order gets kind of nefarious and shifty, and even more so than it already has, because, yeah, we've got information networks coming in, if you hadn't already gathered that. But we'll get to a bit more about that. But first of all, we have the next institution of the Immaculate Order, which is about information gathering, but is mostly about just killing things with fire. It's the Wild Hunt. Another which... headache when it comes to the name, because it's two things. The Wild Hunt is both an organisation 
stroke institution, and a nominally independent religious practice in some heresies, stroke variants, immaculacy, that aren't directly in communion with the order. Yeah, that's more a thing to do with the order's historical roots, which we will get to. But overall, the Wild Hunt is both a military power, a military order, and a religious right. If if you think Crusaders, then you're not going to go too far wrong. And I'm not necessarily talking the big Crusades to the Middle East. If you look at what crusading fever was in Europe where every so often a bunch of folk would go off and just go and bash some of the heathens in Eastern Europe, sort of crusading, then that's the kind of crusading that maps most closely to what the Wild Hunt is, at least in my mind. Its task is to hunt down anathema and wipe them out to the best of its ability. It does kill most of them, but some of them, if they display particularly useful powers that can potentially be contained or be of service to the realm then they will be taken to Numa and locked up in the nail. This happened a lot more often Scarlet Empress around, and she would grab them for her personal collection. Trust me, guys, she wasn't doing anything suspicious. Not at all. No, no, no. <laughs> I maintain that every single Ebb and Dragon-flavoured Infernal is her fault. Probably. The other big thing about the Wild Hunt, as we've mentioned, is that it's cross-cultural. It will include the realm and Lookshy in some efforts where they're operating in the same area, and it's supposed to be entirely apolitical. Um, That, I think, is broadly true, because as the realm has got more political and more self-interested, the Wild Hunt has more just disappeared and been horribly underfunded, rather than being misused. The name itself was sort of made, it was first concocted to hunt down the solar anathema, but in the wake of the Great Contagion, the Fair Folk became much more of a threat, and so the name for the Wild Hunt stuck there. And we're going on a sun hunt, doesn't sound No. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of names, we should probably go over some ranks at this point, because we will talk about them and they will not go anywhere. So, members of the Wild Hunt are called Shikari, with a couple of adjectives. Full-time members of the Wild Hunt who dedicate their whole life to it and are, from everyone we've covered thus far, universally nutters, are called hosted shikari, whereas part-time ones, the far more common sort, are errant shikari, the ones who go off to do a Wild Hunt for a while. A harrier is a shikari with strong combat capabilities, whereas an inquisitor is an investigator and spy, and a castigator is a sorcerer. I should note that they're all expected to be relatively competent in most of these fields anyway. And so With the exception of sorcery. Yeah. But so these titles are the thing that person is best at, not the thing that person is good at. You are expected to have a base level competence at everything if you are in the wild hunt. You are promoted to the rank of Amasa after some experience, uh, which gives you command over a cadre of less experienced Shikari. Then up to that is a Venera, who has command ability. There you get to advise the chapter house. This is all getting a bit space marine very quickly. Uh, yes, yes it is. Decades and decades of service brings you the rank of Ostieri, the commander of a chapter's cadres who reports to the Exarch. Very, very few secular hunters reach this point. I'm sorry, what I should mean by secular hunters, which I managed to entirely leave out of the notes, is that 
People can join the Wild Hunt from a variety of backgrounds. You can get monks who will assign themselves to the Wild Hunt and dedicate themselves to hunting down Anathema. Uh, but you can also get people who come to the Wild Hunt after potentially a secular military career or a secular investigative career. And they will perform various roles for the hunt. But yeah. generally speaking, the ones that rise highest are the ones that have been in the order from the beginning. And um, so it there has that delightful nepotism <laughs> running throughout the thing. Now, the Wild Hunt, as a practice at least, and supposedly as an organization, but it's hard to prove this one, predates the realm. Actually explicitly founded by the Bronze Faction this time, hmm. uh, in the aftermath of the usurpation, and fused in with the Order so that the Bronze Faction could control it as far as First yeah. Edition is concerned. What? What was basically happening there was that Dragonblooded were essentially taking it on themselves to impose order and wipe out Anathema in various disparate groups. And so the Bronze Faction tried to kind of bring them on board. Let's not have a band of roving lunatics murdering anything they think looks suspicious. Basically. <laughs> the, basically the one yes. time that Chejop may have had a point, even if it <laughs> ends with him getting a kill squad army. Convenient, that. <laughs> Yeah, and over time it's kind of went more and more towards kind of focusing on anathema because sidereal direction and paranoia and so on. And then the Great Contagion happened, which, as we've alluded to, made them realise that fair folk existed and there were enemies other than the anathema and solars that are a problem to existence in general. So the sidereals realised that maybe they should pay attention to something other than the shiny sun people which is probably a reasonable piece of advice when you're trying yeah. to keep as many plates spinning as they are. And yeah, they brought in secular military experts. They became they became a medieval knightly order, let's be yes, honest. We, we've we've uh, danced around it for long enough, but that's what they are. They're the Templars. At this point, um, where they were thinking, well, we might do, do want to deal with a whole bunch more threats, is when they wanted to do this. Prior to this point, that was just immaculate monks and those that were particularly devout that were hunting things down because they saw it as a holy duty. Whereas after the Great Contagion, it was kind of, oh, we probably need to kind of know what we're doing a bit more here. Yeah. They've not quite split from the Immaculate Order. They're still accountable to the Mouth of Peace, but they're yes. kind of an independent bureaucracy at this point. Yes. The reporting and everything else and the information gathering kind of becomes a very, very separate entity uh, because you need to be able to chase up all of your reports of anathema and confirm, is this just someone who doesn't like Sybil next door and just wants her out of the way? Or is this an actual Luna <laughs> that's going to cause problems? So there's a lot of fact checking that goes on before the uh, wild hunt gets deployed. And it's this kind of professionalization for want of a better word that sort of starts off process and they also get supplied information by the all-seeing eye to help track that there's explicitly a, a pretty much a liaison body between the all-seeing eye and the wild hunt the committee of matters of venery which coordinates all of the order's information sources they also get a lot of info from yushan thanks to all the sids backing everything notably and I like this because I think it's the first time we've mentioned this poor sap and I have to talk about him. Yes. The Sids who are watching over, heavy scare quotes, or more realistically, spying, on Litech. Let's take a brief tangent to tell you about Litech. <laughs> because yes. 
the god that ever since Exigence came out has started a billion fights on whether or not you're allowed an Exigent of him. <laughs> yes, because Lytek is the god of exaltation. The process of exaltation and assigning of sparks and everything else that is to do with exaltation itself. It's never said that he's the one who picks who gets one. That would go against a lot of the process as you understand it, but yeah. he has stuff to do with the process. As I understand it, especially from a lot of how Saka talks about it, it's the old thing of a river god doesn't decide which way the river flows, but he makes sure it does. It's that thing ah. of to office dramatize the uh the situation because heaven is one big office drama. Yes. Conky says, I want Jim over there to be a solar. And then Lytek gets the dirty job of Okay, right, the solar exaltation. There's Jim. Jim. Bam. And Jim's a solar. And as long as he's not a Zenith, we don't have to make it more complicated than that. Yeah, whereas if it's a Zenith, then Lytek has to handle the connection. Get the telephone. Um, yeah. <laughs> Just kind of make make sure it all goes smoothly, that they're not yeah. pulling collect it's, and all that stuff. He's the god of exaltation, he doesn't have exalts, but he's all about the process. Which means, conveniently, if you're spying on him, like the SIDS are, you know whenever anyone exalts. As long as, and we're very lucky that there isn't any sort of text in second that says Lytek knows he's being watched or anything. There is a text that says exactly that. Yes. <laughs> uh, Lytek's not an idiot. He knows they're all spying on him, and frankly, he's not that happy with it. Part of it in one of the books about heaven, or maybe the sidereal books, I can't remember which one it is from Seth that does this, but it basically says that the reason that the sidereal exaltation takes so long is because Lytek's in a mood with them. <laughs> oh yes, the politics of heaven. It's because just, the, yes. um, the thing for, again, we'll get cover it more in the sidereal thing, the sidereal exaltation is weird in that it doesn't happen all at once, it kind of happens slowly over a period. Yes, and part if part of that is because Lytek just doesn't want to actually let and the, he's delaying let through everything. the system. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. But yes, because Lytek will have some information on when the next solar or lunar and where they're all going to pop, then the Wild Hunt will absolutely keep an eye on him um, to make sure that they know as much as they can in order to hunt the anathema down. Any sort of information that the Wild Hunt gets must be checked before any forces are dispatched. Generally speaking, they'll send mortal agents out to deal with this stuff just as a cursory fact check. If it's going to be dangerous, they will send dragons because they aren't going to just send people to their death. If immortals well established, then yeah, they'll send someone with a bit more understanding to it. And generally speaking, with the rank of Inquisitor, they are someone who stands outside of the hierarchy of the hunt. It's confusing because it's a rank both within the hunt and the Immaculate Order itself. Within the Wild Hunt, it's an Inquisitor is basically someone who is a consummate spy. And so someone who can function in that sort of an environment is sent to look into whatever's happening. The Wild Hunt itself is split into chapters that um, are assigned to control specific areas of creation. Each chapter has a chapter house, which is a manse, which is chosen for either its strategic or supernatural significance, and so that they can control particular areas of it. And then the chapters are the primary divisions for which the Shikari are divided into cadres to hunt everyone down. Cadres are formed on the basis of the needs of the hunt at the time. So there will be some that will serve together all the time and so they can function as a coherent unit and so on but those are deemed to be a bit less flexible than the ones that are formed a bit more spontaneously to deal with oh we know about 
Threat X. Threat X needs someone who is good at sneaking around and can handle themselves in a temple environment. Right, we need you, we need you, we need you. And so those ones are a bit more sort of ad hoc. Those cadres that are sort of pulled together on the fly almost, or just in response to specific threats, are the bulk of the cadres out there for the hunt. And they also, in addition to including Dragonblooded, will include mortal troops and basically whatever is needed to maintain the hunt. So in some cases, you'll have cadres that form up armies to go and hunt down Anathema just to go and hit them with as much force as possible, which will necessitate use of mortal troops and all of the support staff that you need to go along with an army. And you've also got people that will know the area or have a particular expertise in the type of anathema that they're hunting or something like that and any soothsayers around to try and get any messages from heaven about what this particular anathema is doing soothsayer yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. and if one of those soothsayers happens to karate chop the anathema and they turn into a duck that's just coincidence totally yeah another thing city real martial arts can do by the way they're not stupid is the other thing They know that individually they're outgunned. Tactically, they like to strike directly, quickly, surgical application of overwhelming force. But if it starts becoming a protracted fight, they'll bail, because they know that they won't win that against most of the things they're fighting, i.e. Solars and Lunars. Fair folk, eh, maybe, but Solars and Lunars, don't make it a sit-down slugfest, you'll lose. And they like using more covert methods to take down the anathema, which are becoming more and more common nowadays because the hunt's running out of people. Yeah, the covert methods are things like poisoning them or sinking the ship they're on and hoping they're not able to walk on water and things like that. Just ways that don't involve direct confrontation. Love Exalted that you had to qualify there with sink the ship they're on and hope that they can't walk on water. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because it's a distinct possibility. Or breathe water or otherwise not be bothered by this. (laughs) Yes, there are an immense amount of options where that wouldn't necessarily apply, but that's a bit more messy because of all those qualifications that we've just gone over. Those sorts of sabotage-based methods are much more uncertain. So even though they are becoming more common, they're not preferred. And they're not more effective. No. Killing them with fire and vast amounts of military bodies is generally the best way to do it as far as the hunt is concerned, but they don't have the bodies anymore. When the Empress disappeared, the numbers got just ruined because all the houses started hoarding all the military personnel. There used to be 500 DB Shikari, and we now have less than 100. Yeah, it's absolutely been slashed. I mean, the number of chapter houses as well, they, they used to have 11 chapter houses, and it's now down to six, uh, just because everyone has essentially pulled all of the secular members of the Wild Hunt out to go and serve the house military. It doesn't really help that the whole thing was also run as a charity. It's sort of the comparison here is the Night's Watch in A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, Mm. where they relied on donations from the great houses, and those donations have been absolutely slashed because the houses are starting to hoard all their resources for the coming civil war. The Cult of the Illuminated book in first edition basically gives the hunt another six months of ability to run on the cash that it's got before it needs to start liquidating things in order to survive. It's very bad for them, but it's very good if you're a person playing a first edition game and are a solar. (laughs) Yeah, 
And another flip side to this, a lot of the donations and so on that are given are entirely voluntary, but the Wild Hunt also has an immense amount of artifacts because artifact weapons are just much better for killing Anathema with. But quite a number of those are loaned from great houses. They are not outright given if they are big and potent artifact weapons. They're possibly tied to the service of a particular member of the Wild Hunt or for a particular number of years or until the house has need of it. Whatever arrangements they've come to, they're contingent on having a large portion of their arsenal dependent on the largesse of the great houses, which is going to dry up. Yeah. So, yeah, the Wild Hunt is becoming an increasing mess. It starts off very, very nice and wonderful and sounds like this fantastic creation-spanning thing which will hunt down Anathema wherever they find them and bring them justice and death and whatever else they need, but it's really not in the shape to do it. Now, let's take you on a nice little journey through the Immaculate ecclesiastic hierarchy, for use of a better term. This episode feels like it's a lot of, and now we talk about an awfully complex subject for a long period of time. Yeah. Because there's been a lot of detail sunk into the Immaculate Order. It's been lovely to read about, but wow, is there a lot. Now it means you have to listen to the lecture. Um, <laughs> yeah. Take notes, there will be a test. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's give you Jim, our nice little Immaculate Initiate. Jim could have come from any number of origin points. There are loads of ways into Immaculacy. Some come from Immaculate Primary Schools, others working at temples and monasteries as just sort of lay workers, and others can be criminals who just want to seek peace in a very, sort of again, very Buddhist of you could go to prison or you could go to the temple <laughs> sort yeah, of solution. Or just a war veteran who's seen too much or yeah. something like that. Yeah, whatever sort of way you want to spin it. You present yourself as a postulant in a nearby mission and wait for an audience with the Archimandrite. And that waiting can take quite a while because you basically turn up, you're told to wait, you are given very unpleasant clothes to wear while you are going to do it, um, where the monks will come out and insult you for weeks. The comparison that I've made with it is that it's signing up to join Project Mayhem from Fight Club, where you turn up with everything that you're told to turn up with, and then you wait outside the house for however long and get shouted at, belittled, slandered, insulted, yeah. things tipped on you, and then eventually you're let in. This isn't an out-of-the-blue thing. This is an adaptation of an, as I understand it, before the professors of Buddhism come at me, I've not read every single Buddhist text ever made, an archaic Buddhist practice back in the earlier days of the faith. Basically because of how it related to a lot of the legal process in India um, or in the various Indian states at the time. Being Going to a monk was a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card for a lot of things. They made it deliberately hard. It's not quite as much as sitting there and yelling at you, but the being given uncomfortable clothes, a single bowl that you can only fill once a day is your feeding thing while you are waiting for the application process to become a, mon a monk. That was a thing, deliberately making it mm. difficult because of all of the, as much as it is a life of austerity, all of the societal benefits it could bring, that they didn't want everyone jumping onto it because it would upset the other. Yes. 
And as much as that process is there for a reason, as much as I imagine many of those reasons still apply with the Immaculate Order, the process can be sped up. If you have people vouching for you and providing you references, then you can absolutely speed up the process. And Dragonblooded also get direct consideration by the Palace Sublime. Mortal members uh, need to petition their local temple and they will essentially go to their regional head, so to speak, whereas Dragonblooded will involve the Palace Sublime directly and presumably get a sped up process because they've travelled all the way to the Isle and everything else as well. So again, that's as much of a part of the selection process in and of itself. Now you're in. You're an acolyte. You're a first-rank acolyte, and you get to spend a year with the puissant and humble instructors, where you get daily drills on martial arts and immaculate philosophy, and they will test you to see if you advance every season. You get five exams, and then before you level up into becoming a real monk, and if you fail, you go home or you become a, a lay oblate. Yeah, which is basically just a member of the laity who serves the immaculate order. Oblates are just temple staff, basically. Yeah, the acolytes surrender their name and take on something unpretentious. I'm putting an asterisk next to that. When we get into some immaculate people, you will understand why. I can clarify that one, because the immaculate people are generally not acolytes. The name changes will alter oh, as they we continue. go through. Yeah, okay. you start off with kind of like humble sparrow or leaf or whatever, something suitably simple and one note and then you can get more complex later yes your training then goes on once you are a monk you get designated one immaculate dragon including its particular martial arts to study physical tests and philosophical examinations happen at the same time and it's not really specified at least not in third quite what those entail the there's a lot of detail in the previous editions about the particular benefits of each martial art and the particular kinds of enlightenment they bring, which are good to delve into, but I don't particularly want to cover them in this episode because it would take a long time to go through. Uh, but um, the standards for mo- if you're a mortal are a little softer, though, because you're not going to be as physically capable of being brutalised while <laughs> being asked to argue your point <laughs> as a dragon-blooded. Yeah. Once you've done that training and your instructors are satisfied, you become a monk of the first coil and get placed somewhere within the Immaculate World by the breath of Sextus Gilus, like I said, the HR department. You can then either choose to reclaim your old name or keep the one that you were given when you became an acolyte, or petition the Archimandrite for a new one. Yes, and you'll get however many different names there. If you petition an Archimandrite for a new one, that's where the big flowery names for the Immaculate Monks come from. And those are generally referred to by diminutives anyway um, for the, over the course of it. The example that gets given in the third book is something like Ever Raging River of the East or something could almost be a name but you'll just probably get called River by most people. I just realised what they're doing here. Now, I don't know. Again, Buddhist historians might find that there is a tradition of it. I don't know that there is. But if we take this back to, oh, look, it's some white wolf writers in the early 2000s emulating something that they know. How much do you know about early Protestantism? A reasonable amount. But... And how it went in England, especially when we got to the Puritan phase with Cromwell and people giving themselves really silly names. 
Oh, like, um, yeah. you'll know better than I some of the specifics, but they were like, yeah. God be merciful upon this household is what you'll call your son or something ridiculous. Yeah, there was a lot of kind of virtue giving names. And from what I can gather with early Protestantism and early Puritanism particularly, it was as much for actual anonymity as it was anything else because you went too far and the authorities would come for you. Yeah. And if they can only give you some virtue name, then they can't find you. And also it makes them look really bad when they come in asking for the town with their sword and their well, gun in the in 1600s. This has been like, where, where is blessed infant? Yeah, where is the blessed infant? We need to murderise them. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that's a diversion again. Absolutely. There's lots of them here because we're talking about religion. So once you level up from the first coil, you go into the second coil where you get usually a position of responsibility in a temple, a bit more authority. Next level up, the third coil, which is pretty much where the mortals stop. This is where you get to be an administrator, an abbot, yeah. that sort of level. This is where you head into the breaths, which we will get to. The breaths being the administrative wings of the order and not really attached to any sort of local thing. This is where it goes from being a local concern to a creation-wide concern, and the third coil is where monks start on that particular path. Yep. The fourth coil, then, is where you get to be Archimandrites, your administrators of the breaths, and all of your other high-up specialists, before you get to the Grand Masters of the Fifth Coil, or Paragons, as they're called in second. First and third, I believe, don't say how many fifth coil people there are. Nope. Second says there's one of each. So there's five total. Yep. One per dragon. And each of them have very, very high order-sweeping responsibilities as basically an oversight body. Do they f essentially function as the heads of the breaths? Kind of, but also they kind of have their own thing where they get to nose into everyone else's stuff. The Paragon of Bernard is the one who's running that, but also then has to kind of keep the dogma in check and make sure that the order in general isn't getting too tyrannical. Or the Paragon of Heshiesh is expected to act as the voice of reason and calm deliberation among the Paragons and Immaculate Order as a whole, uh, who must pay attention to any sign of shift away from orthodoxy without good reason, blah, 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 yeah. etc., etc. They do look over the breaths, but they also kind of handle the entire order. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's possibly where we... Well, I don't know whether we necessarily see the Sidereals acting there, or not, because, again, it depends on what edition you're looking at as to how directly the Sidereals are controlling the Immaculate Order. But pretty much any of them will say that there are some Bronze Faction Sidereals within the Immaculate Order somewhere, and they will kind of direct it subtly towards the Sidereals' goals, whether they're sort of acting as kind of the wise advisor, um, the kind of one who just gives advice to the high up, the kind of the cleaner that they always trust, that particular yeah. stereotype or whether they actually hold responsibility or not. Our man Chairjop routinely masquerades as a sort of right-hand man assistant figure for the mouthpiece, and that's kind of where I see a lot of the real direction happening, not necessarily by taking over the high-level command figures, because you get caught and the whole thing gets rumbled. But yes. if you make sure you're next to them, especially since the ones that high up, they know. <laughs> they know what the deal is, and they know that while you don't have a rank here, you do, you are their boss. Yes. That's the general course of monks in general. And that's kind of assuming that you get put within a temple or other institution. You also get itinerant monks that happen that basically just wander creation and are there to both 
spread the faith and minister to the already faithful, particularly in areas that aren't big enough to support a temple or a monastery or anything like that. They wouldn't necessarily do it for monasteries, but we'll get to that. And but, they're spies. Yeah, they're also spies. But yeah, some will sort of have a circuit they go through over a year or a number of years, and some will just go wherever they feel like they're being led. But all monks, all itinerant monks particularly, will write reports on all of the communities they visit and send them back to the order. So that basically allows them to assess this general state of all the communities they visit. Like, is this big enough and immaculate enough to support a temple, or is it somewhere where heresy is taking root and we need to do something about it? Yeah. We've mentioned temples and monasteries in passing here. I'm going to go into them in a bit more. Temple, basically, a temple is put in a place that serves the community. It has scheduled services. It's staffed by monks. It's a place where the laity can go. It gives you your basic education. It answers to local missions like with authority of geographic regions, all that sort of stuff. I should clarify, missions are temples that have regional authority. So a mission will have several temples in the local area that report everything to it. And then the missions answer to a mission in each direction. So there will be the mission of the north, south, east, west, and presumably, well, no, the one in the middle is the Palace Sublime itself. But then the directional ministries report to the Palace Sublime uh, with everything that's going on. A temple headed up by an Archimandrite, so that, that rank means. The, the fun bit here, the information flow of the Order is listed as more efficient than the Guild and more official than the Eye. That's yes. big. That's huge. They basically have one of the most unrestricted flows of information across the realm. I wonder why that might be. Yeah. <laughs> Given who's running it. It's almost like this serves as a very large, convenient intel gathering machine. Yes, absolutely it does. You are entirely right, and I'm wondering whether there's any meat left on the skeleton of that horse that you're flogging. <laughs> it's fine. It will continue to be beaten. The yes. beatings will continue until the sidereals go. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's absolutely the case that, yes, this is designed to gather information and process it for the purposes of uncovering heresy and promoting immaculacy within whatever places it finds itself. Quite how far this extends to non-realm, I'd be kind of curious about, because, again, the East in particular is a bit of a blank spot for the realm because Lookshire is in the way. And uh, the entire sort of confederation of the rivers. Yes. But my flip side there, they've got Greyfalls. They do have Greyfalls, yes. It's not a clean blind spot for the east, it's a blind spot for the scavenger lands. Because, well, yeah. yeah, okay, further east on the threshold, the realm isn't there. There's also nothing there that's stopping the realm. Whereas the scavenger lands quite routinely just likes to make a mess of anything the realm's trying to do. Yeah, although I would imagine there's probably a fair amount of competition in the scavenger lands for the smaller places because broadly speaking within the scavenger lands i envisage them as being quite immaculate because Lukshai is going to promote that as well potentially yeah Lukshai is going to promote immaculacy and Lukshai specifically is going to be very immaculate yes the problem that i raised to you there is Lukshai isn't the most loved true either it's also kind of seen as a big ugly brute yeah, um, so you're going to just get competition between the realm and Lookshire about which flavour of immaculacy yeah. they've got in particular places in the scavenger lands. Everything between there, we've got the Hundred Kingdoms who all do their own thing. 
You've got Great Forks, and now, thanks to the Exigence book, Great Forks basically has a little baby empire all of its own, are actively working against Immaculacy, because the three don't like that. You've got Sijin, which is doing whatever Sijin does, Uh, (laughs) and Thorns is also right there, let's not forget. This region is a problem. (laughs) It's messy. It's very, very messy. Yeah, Um, and you just do whatever on earth you need to do with it. Um, Back on topic. Monasteries. They aren't accessible to people. They are monasteries. They're secluded away from the population centres. They're a place of refuge, study, and contemplation for monks without having to deal with the lay folk. Monks stay in two-person cells and are served by the Oblates, and they contain libraries that are generally for the monks alone, but a dragon blood with the right connections can swing access on occasion. Yeah, and these places are... If you want to know what the Immaculate Order knows on an academic level, these are the places you go. These are the places that contain all of the rare texts. If you're wanting to be a monk scholar, you will generally seek out a monastery because it's quiet and you can look stuff up and read without any distractions and all of that sort of thing. So the kind of collective knowledge of the Immaculate Monasteries is a huge thing and a subject of envy to secular scholars because of how they operate and how they keep everything within themselves to um to quite a degree. Yeah. Access to a monastery is only granted by an abbot, but that's a rubber stamp. If a dragon wants to go in, a dragon goes in. Yes. And it's again, probably should go almost without saying, because it's a role playing setting, it should be flexible. But each monastery kind of has its own rules and its own character there. So they'll some places will be known as a particular place to focus on particular areas of study or be devoted to a particular immaculate dragon and have other strictures some might be same sex some might have particular dietary restrictions or particular other things that you do while you are there i mean it's a way of having different spins between benedictine and dominican and all of that sort of stuff equally i've seen cases mostly in the pre-written ventures weirdly um back from second where because, again, it's normally a monk's job rather than a priest. Distinction between monk and priest being monastery or temple. Um, but a monastery might have a deal with a certain god that means the monks will do certain yep. things so that the god doesn't bother the locals. Yes. Like the, the dietary restrictions one is what pinged me with that, because I'm like, I can't tell you which one, but I remember somewhere, but they've been like a monastery that they eat only X thing because they've cut a deal with the local god of X crop to make sure that it doesn't bother anyone else. Yep, that makes sense. And all of those from all of those particular organs will report back to the Palace Sublime on a regular basis about something. Every monk will produce reports on whatever interactions they do. And basically, that will direct order policy in any particular interactions that they get. And this is the bit where we get some dual rank that if any monk is particularly good at sniffing out problems and looking into details they will be given the title inquisitor um, and then be told you can go and hunt out corruption and whatever kinds of scandals you can find deal with them however you see fit off you go which isn't necessarily tied to the wild hunt in the way that we talked about them before Uh, this is just the order in general so there's two different types of inquisitor both called inquisitors yeah now we get to go on to the breaths finally yes They've been haunting this episode, as we keep mentioning them. They are the five administrative divisions that oversee the order politically, basically. They each have tens of thousands of members of staff on the aisle, and they'll have some in the threshold as well, presumably. 
and each one has a HQ at one of the major temples on the Isle. So let's rattle them off, each one named after Dragon. Yes. We start off with the Breath of Sextus Gilus. They look after the well-being and progression, development and so on of monks and also supervise public works. They are your HR department. They have more staff than any of the other breaths, unsurprisingly, because there are a lot of monks out there that need to be kept track of. And they also monitor recruitment and assessment. So yeah, more HR functions. They will also just basically be a constant presence within the life of a monk trying to foster spiritual development in some ways. They will assign you various places and make you go with things. Probably and being a- haunted by Nemon Clippy. Yeah. Basically just sending you places against your will in some ways. If you get comfortable somewhere but aren't being seen to progress spiritually, the Breath of Sextus Gilus will see to it that you're sent somewhere else, probably. Yeah. Uh, they also do a large-scale environmental projects, which has nothing to do with human resources, but they're here. They do dams, forest planting, farming community management, those sorts of things. And they kind of do half of disaster relief along with the Breath of Denard. Yes, because you're going to have to deal with the fallout from the environment, if from a disaster and so on, and just manage the land, which is kind of what the Breath of Sextus Chalice does. Next up, Passiap. Buildings. They are your groundskeepers. Yes. And construction. Builders and groundskeepers all in one. Uh, They also handle the budget, though they downplay this aspect because they don't want to talk about the order's wealth, because they want to retain humble, and they don't want to threaten the great houses with the fact that they have all the money in the world. Yeah, basically, if there's anything being built, this is the breath that you do it with. Just to sort of out of sequence a bit with the with the why they're trying to hide the budget, at least according to second edition. The deliberative does not decide how much money the Immaculate Order gets. The Mouth of Peace decides how much money from the realm the Immaculate Order gets, which back in the day was kept check by the, by the Empress. Now there's no one checking on it. The Mouth of Peace just says, give me this much money, and as far as the book seems to say, the realm just has to oblige. Yeah, but I can quite imagine that those sort of requests, if they are too unreasonable, getting thoroughly lost within the thousand scales, and so that it I never raise you the flip side. Delivered. Who's the regent right now? Yes. <laughs> well, no, the regent oh, the regent wouldn't have anything to do with it. It would just be the machinations that happen within the thousand oh, scales true. and the treasury. You can say it gets lost the treasury. It's another thing I'm thinking that Fokuf, this might be the one time he uses all the rubber stamp power he's been given, (laughs) is whenever the Immaculate Order asks him nicely. Yeah, depends on quite how generous he's feeling. As much as he spends an awful lot of time reading the Immaculate texts, I don't think he's particularly personally pious. Uh, Anyway, like we said, groundskeepers, architects, geomancers, actuaries, they do lots of stuff. Breath of Passiap is a very broad organisation. Yes. And they sometimes hire out the Breath of Sextus Gilus's workers just to sort of keep them in use. Yeah, because it feels kind of very incestuous. That It is that kind of wanting to keep them in use in the sense of sort of, I'm verging on the phrase job creation, but I don't know whether that's strictly accurate, but it does feel like, yeah. I'd read it as that, especially because like you even see this completely charitably of the entire Immaculate Order is by and large pro-maintaining the community. That also kind of does mean make sure they don't go into poverty. Keep yeah. them working, that's a good thing. But yeah, Breath of Mela, combat training, military planning. Yes. Uh, they maintain the wild hunt and martial orders and all of these things. Yeah, I think in this construction, because the vast bulk of everything from this is from third, in how we're looking at the breaths at this point. And so I imagine that the various orders from the hunt as existed in first 
have been kind of sort of folded into the breath of melee at this point we've not had anything specific on the wild hunt at this point and i'm not sure we will necessarily get one uh, but i would just fold the wild hunt into the breath of melee at this point at least the administration of it the actual fighters are something else altogether because uh this is all about coordinating the military forces that the order has rather than actually being those military forces and they are essentially the logistics side of it telling people where to go and when and how and why um and they also oversee the training of individual monks as well whereas the breath of sextus gilus gives them assignments and locations and so on and looks after the spiritual development the breath of mela does physical development because they They teach you kung fu yeah they teach you kung fu not got many members but they don't need them no they're one of the only ones really that doesn't actually need hundreds of thousands of people no, because they, they're there to train and advise and coordinate. They're not any of the ones that actually do any of the stuff that they say they're going to do. Whereas from what we've been saying about Sexist Gilus and Pass the App, they are kind of, a lot of them feel like the on-the-ground workers doing stuff. The Breath of Mailer emphasises the administrative side of it. I suppose that I should point out the Breaths are the ones that are the coordinators overall. And so not a lot of these will be directly working on the ground so to speak but they are just the coordinators of whatever we're talking about if local niche temple says help we need a master of immaculate air style because one of ours died and we don't have anyone good enough these are the guys that figure out right find an immaculate air master and ship him yeah. out to this one yep next up breath of heshiesh which can best be summarized as the uh, department <laughs> they do special projects they do anything that the other four breaths want that needs a few more people on it or anything that everyone else looks at and is like that's just weird i don't think this is our department they do training mortal thaumaturges for all those times you need mortal thaumaturges and sorcerers handling exigence handling dangerous artifacts they are to a degree the magic department but the problem is the Immaculate Order doesn't necessarily have that much of a, a sorcery interest, so... No. Although I'd imagine that um, for things like demonology cults and that sort of thing that do get yeah. explicitly mentioned when you look into Lathe, one of my pet locations, that I'd imagine that they are to do with the Breath of Heshiesh. Yeah. And so there's that. But We've killed an anathema, but he had a house full of stuff. Yeah. Send in the Breath of Heshiesh guys who go in all suited and booted like the collection agency thing from Monsters Incorporated. Yeah, absolutely. They are one of the ones that is noted as being more, quote, egalitarian in their staffing and problem-solving process, uh, which basically gives them uh, a population which is kind of implied as the, the ones that none of the other Breaths really want to take. And I will quote this directly. Um, that results in a population consisting heavily of the old, infirm, and eccentric. So these are the ones that, yeah, it's... On, on the one hand, thanks, White Wolf, that's a bit... Or well, Onyx Path now, since this is third taken, that's a bit suspect. On the other hand, this perfectly explains most of the realm's magical mishaps. You've got the team of people nobody wanted to pick handling all the dangerous magical material. This is the thing, it's... It's kind of implying that the other... I think this. it's not necessarily saying that the Breath of Heshiesh is hiring people who are bad at their jobs, 
but it's saying that the other breaths potentially have a bias. That's the way that I read it. Okay. Because an awful lot of the stuff that the breaths are doing is desk work anyway. So physical capability isn't something that is necessarily a requirement of the role. So it's just them being picky. And so those that are less likely to fit in in other organisations will find a home in the breath of Hesiesh. And because of that, it's also one that's quite likely to vary in size a lot more if there are a lot of older monks hanging around or ones that are recuperating from various things like being struck down with plague and the like is an example that's given then they'll just be taken in by the breath of Heshiesh and so it will suddenly grow to be huge if there's a particular pandemic on or something and they'll suddenly have more staff than the breath of Sextus Gilus for a few years or if there's a particularly large cohort of monks that are just basically aging through the process because the breath of Heshiesh will take people that are of an older age than the other breaths will tend to, they will suddenly swell in numbers. Yeah. Now, finally, breath of Donard. Community development. The breath of Sextus Gilus does sort of the personal development for monks in his HR, whereas the breath of Donard serves the laity, makes sure that community engagement, I guess, outreach programs. I'm not sure what the specific term would be for that branch of a church, but all of them have them. The making sure that people actually come here department. <laughs> um, I wouldn't necessarily call it evangelism directly because um, there's an awful lot of emphasis on service provision as well. They do things like healthcare and education and in some cases housing. They'll do things like bring the breath of Pasiap in to build places if there's been a housing shortage or something, I imagine, as well as providing humanitarian aid. So they are community services, which I know in English has, or at least in Britain has, some very, very distinct associations with prison labour. But it's not that. It is serving the community. It is not... Again, to bring back the Catholicism, weirdly, because... Again, Buddhism, which is what a lot of them are aiming for, does a lot of things like this. But this, again, smacks me more of your capital C church, especially sort of pre-1800s. Yes. Where they're the ones running the poor houses, they're the ones running this, that, and the other. They're the ones... Yeah, they're the welfare state. Yeah, they are the welfare state, but it's the church. Yes. And often they end up seeing the first sprouts of heresy and having to deal with it, which means it's a very spiritually challenging post. Yes, and you're probably also going to get your traditional theological questions from the folk around you as well. If you're trying to coordinate disaster relief because a river has burst its banks, the questions of why Okato has done this to us and what does that mean, what have we done sort of questions is going to be a big thing for that breath to deal with. The big one that smacks me for this breath is in your post-revolution scenario. Uh, you said the dragons are perfect. Why was that one being all horrible? Because <laughs> this is the thing. Of, we've trash-talked dragon bloods for a whole series now. They are not perfect. This religion kind of hinges on you believing they are. <laughs> yes. We have seen so much that says not. Anyway, moving past the breaths. Yes. Let's talk about their friends. Nemon. Yes. <laughs> Nemon. House Nemon. House Nemon and Nemon the Lady, yes. both of them. House of Celsi as well, which is 
Doubly fun. Yeah. I and the bronze faction. Yeah. Before we rattle through the whole list, but we should possibly give reasons as to why, Nemon essentially took sanctuary with the Order when Ragnarok was trying to kill her. And just ever since, she's been personally devoutly immaculate and has she supported She is kind the of order. trying to take over. Yes. But then again, that can just be tied up with she's trying to be her mother. Yes, that's fair enough. She's trying to direct the Order, but that's not because she sees the Order as a tool. It's, I think, more because Nimon sees herself as more enlightened than most other people or all other people, and she wants to see the thing that she loves do well. Especially given that the current mouth of peace is her granddaughter. Yes. Which makes... Nemon already has a superiority complex, we've covered this, but <laughs> yes. this will flare it up more that the fact that it's her granddaughter that's the mouth of peace telling her that she doesn't know how immaculacy works. <laughs> yeah, how dare you do that? House of Celsi, flip side, we've again covered. Again, weirdly, the Immaculate Order's best friends are all, someone's trying to kill us, don't worry. <laughs> yes, the House of Celsi um, was taken in by the Order after the house was dissolved, and... That's one of the few places where you'll actually see House of Celsi operating openly under the name. The former Mouth of Peace before the current one was openly in a Celsi until um, death. Yeah, which I don't think was under um, suspicious circumstances, was it? It wasn't mentioned as such, but then okay. again, it was basically two sentences that said that it, the last one was in a Celsi in the book that I was getting this from. Their final big backers. The Bronze Faction! Yay! The Bronze Faction Siderials, yes. We spoke about earlier that Nemon is directing the Order but doesn't see it as a tool. The Sids are directing the Order and they absolutely see it as a tool. Yes. But they're at least making sure that the tool stays sharpened and cleaned. Yes. Uh, there are one or two that believe the hype and just convert. We'll get we'll, to we'll, them. We'll get, we'll, get to, we'll get to one of those. Four unfortunate souls that have to sit there seeing... Because the main reason the Bronze Faction don't tend to get personally devout, and it will be newer sidereals that buy it, is they were there when this was just some local regional micro-cult that they pretty much lifted up and put into a place of global hegemony. Yes, you will have a solid number of the sidereals that will remember the origins of the Immaculate Order. So, And you've got Chejop there, who routinely goes down and says, actually, this should be the religious rule. Yeah... The more fun thing comes when we talk about their enemies. Because <laughs> now, yes, okay, everyone who wasn't on that list is basically going to have some degree of problem with them. Whether yes. that ranges from, oh, they're stepping on our toes with this to outright hating them. But there's mm -hmm. three here that I really want to focus on. First off, any house that is anti-Nemon, because the public perception is basically that the Immaculate Order is her tool. Even though that's not how Nemon sees it, that's how everyone else sees it. So Ragara specifically, you would think is a problem, but old man Ragara seems to be trying to backstep on that. Either that or undercut Nemon. Or, as we mentioned before, trying to finagle his way into the nail. Yeah. it's There's a lot of reasons for why Ragara could be doing Well, I don't know. That's, this is interesting. Ragara personally is getting more immaculate in his old age, but I don't see that affecting the house particularly. Yeah. That's the sort of thing of like, yes, but it could, see, it could affect how the Order sees the house, even if it's not how the house sees the Order. The next one are the Gatimians. We do not have the time for me to explain in depth what a Gatimian is. Bad guy sidereal, powered by paradox juice. Yeah, someone who is exalted out of a destiny that never was, and has been just plucked from the discarded threads of the loom of fate to achieve some destiny that should have happened but didn't. 
is yeah. basically it. And they have been finagled and co-opted by a rogue sidereal by the name of Rakan Thulio. And they are basically doing everything they can to tear down everything the sidereals built. Ow. And so the Order will be one of their biggest targets. Yes. Uh, and dear listeners, you might hear that and think, hey, weren't they something different? They've gone through a few iterations since they were first hinted at in Thirds Core. Yes. There's, by my count, about three different variants for what a Gatimian is before we got to the one we have now. There will be a Gatimian episode at some point. There will be, yes. The third one, however, is my favourite. The Cults of the Illuminated. We mentioned them briefly in the Solar episode way back. These are the fronts for the Gold Faction serials, who are... <laughs> A different kind of rogue, Sid. Not as bad as Rakanthulio, but still a problem for the Bureau-ish. Yes. As I understand it, they're still kind of in with the Bureau, just on the fringes, versus Rakan, who's an outright problem. These are interesting. They're much smaller than the Immaculate Order, but they are a competing religion that in many cases outright tries to supplant and convert Immaculate followers. Yes. That has the same big advantage that Immaculacy does of... We've got a military force of exalts, and our exalts are a lot more bang for their buck individually than yours. And we've got Sidereals who can direct the whole thing. This yep. is, weirdly, despite the massive size difference, the one time that the Immaculate Order is on equal footing in a competition with something. More or less. They need to operate very covertly. They almost function in some ways like a jihadi terrorist group, uh, right down to this um, gathering up Solar Exalted and sending them off to training camps. It also varies depending on where you are in creation. They can't operate openly if they're in the threshold, but there are sort of moves that the Gold Faction and the Cult of the Illuminated will make to actively supplant the immaculate order like you and said I raised but you. it's questionable as to what sort of a hold the immaculate culture has that means how there's, openly they can operate because there's one place where we do have openly operating cults of the illuminated that you can actually ask to find and get taken to scavenger lands my baby where they are there and if you're a solar by and large you'll get directed there because like, yeah they're the sun nuts go on provided that look doesn't try to kill you first yeah, well, if you're anywhere where the locals are talking about it, you're on the wrong end of the scavenger lands for Lukshai. You're too far upriver. That's true. But yeah, that's the interesting one, mostly because if you want to do... For those of you wanting to do a theological competition game, <laughs> this, this is where you go. <laughs> yeah, although it should be noted that the gold faction are sort of the underdogs here very much. They are working with whatever they can pull together on a shoestring. So I just I just see it now that he was like, yes, here's my exalted game. What are we doing? A disputation. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh dear. Love it. That, that, um, that, yes. Okay. We're, now that we've got that all that silliness done, we should probably get some notable immaculates so you can get a bit more of a feel for the variety that there is in the immaculate order because there is a lot of it. First of all, we have the mouth of peace, which. Um, there's been some slight variance in quite what they are, or at least details fluctuate as ever. The current Mouth of Peace, as far as we know, which is to say, going on what 2nd edition is saying, is Earth Aspected and of House Nimon. She is the face of the Order. We don't get a name for the Mouth of Peace in any edition. I think, well, my kind of headcanon for this is that they will just take the title as their name and they will just be the mouth of peace because that's what they are. But 
I don't know that for sure. Don't take that for certain. The current mouth of peace is doing some interesting things. Apparently, she is trying to basically get a bit more control over the order from Chejop Kajak, uh, yeah. who strikes me as one of the worst people to try and intrigue against possible. Yeah, but the flip side, I raised you one tool that the current mouth of peace has that means that this is quite fun. Hey, Chejop, my friend, my buddy, you made me mouth of peace. I know what you all do. Do you know how this order treats uh, Anathema, that very powerful celestial exalts that have subverted the Immaculate Order and infiltrated it at every level? Hmm. And are trying to direct it to their own ambitions and goals? We mentioned earlier how Anathema yeah. are defined. <laughs> it's the case of there's a sword of Damocles of he basically has to either kill her and make sure that she hasn't set anything up or she could very quickly, if he doesn't let her take her own directions here, turn it on him. Well, it would split the order, in my opinion, because... It would. There are bits that the Sidereals have written into the Immaculate Texts to put themselves in as sort of the messengers and holy and blessed and so on, and they can point to those bits and say, look, this is us, this is what we're doing, don't listen to her. Yeah, it's the problem of the way that Anathema is defined and... It's part of the reason I like that I am outright quoting the Immaculate Text earlier. There's enough of a leg to stand on, but because of all the paranoia they've built about what solars yeah. and what lunars especially, I feel a lot of the lunar paranoia will come from Sidereals because it's an enemy within sort of thing. And because it's coming from the mouth of peace, who is basically unquestionable, it's the sort of thing of, yeah, this could very quickly get very messy. And the SIDS, as much as they probably could come out of it okay, I don't think it's a fight they want to have. Yeah. Versus letting the Mouth of Peace have a bit more control. Yeah, that's fair enough. And the current Mouth of Peace is still desperately trying to stir things up as well, because she is trying to get a successor appointed for her position, which is unusual. The Mouth of Peace functions essentially like the Dalai Lama in this case, for the, for the most part, because when the Mouth of Peace dies, they will start to search for anyone who was born around that time and likely to exalt before they're 15. And so they will then look at those, select the most promising candidate and just basically pick her up and start her training. And it, it is implied to be always a her. And basically, if she doesn't exalt by the time she's 15, they desperately have to try and change candidates and think, oh, we've got this wrong. We're not going to talk about the other one. But there's not really enough time for that. That leaves a huge gap because you're then going to have 15 years or so or a certain amount of time, at least until sort of puberty. There is no mouth of peace. And yeah. so if the current mouth of peace can designate a successor, you can at least have a vaguely organised regency. Or if you're going by... I can't remember whether the current... Dalai Lama trying to appoint a successor actually wanted to appoint someone who was already around when he right. was. Now, the way this went, the Dalai Lama has kind of always had one, but it's a reincarnatory thing, the, pa the Panchen Lama. The problem with that is that the Panchen Lama went missing in China, um, and uh, then the Chinese said, we found a new one! And the Dalai Lama said, no. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. That's me getting my politics wrong. It's a political game with the current one. That's fair enough. But the the other thing this does, however, on the topic of the reincarnation thing being a political game, you mentioned she was trying to wrest control away from Chejop. Yes. 
I would not be surprised if the group of people or the whatever it is that actually determines, ah, you're the reincarnation of the mouth of peace, happens to all have a bunch of people that spend a lot of time looking at the stars in it. If she can determine her own successor, that again cuts him out of the loop. Yeah. It also explains how, as much as you said, there is the thing of if they don't exalt, you have control for it. How we haven't had more cases of that because they have foresight. They know that that one's going to. Yep, that absolutely makes sense. And that also raises the fantastic question of precisely what the mouth of peace is. I absolutely love the philosophical question of is thing X thing X because they are thing X or is thing X thing X because they do what thing X does? Are they the mouth of peace because they are the mouth of peace or are they the mouth of peace because they act like the mouth of peace? Huh. So, Next exalted game we're going to run, everyone, is the anti-pope game with yeah. the Mouth of Peace, where the Mouth of Peace has picked her own successor and yep. Chedrop has picked her successor, and yes. then the Mouth of Peace dies, and we have the Avignon Mouth of Peace. <laughs> yes, you could absolutely do that. I, I could see that as a kind of an absolutely horrific kind of filed away under novel ways to start the civil war. <laughs> yeah, or just a sidereal game. Yeah. Yeah, sidereal game with dragon bloody <laughs> The pawns. Avignon papacy, yeah. Yeah. Next up on our list of notable immaculates, before we go down that rabbit hole, because we are not building it now. We're waiting until the Maker Thing on the Hooks episode, at least. The next up on the notable immaculates side is Peleps Sepata Zurin, who is one of the most celebrated immaculate missionaries ever, uh, went to a whole bunch of exotic places and converted some supposedly impossible to convert people and just some very, very inhospitable climbs. We talked about him in the Pelops episode. Uh, if you yeah. want some more details on the places he went, go check that one out. He's a confirmed nutter, though, because of his current mission. Yes. He has currently set out for Thorns because he's gone to try and convert the Mask of Winters. So we'll be holding his funeral Tuesday. Pretty much. And it's... then he goes back to work on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. Because he's gone to convert the Mask of Thorns. <laughs> oh. The mask of Winter. Oh, yeah. That's... Ow. Ow. That's Sorry, that's the only way this ends. That there is... is no way that you are going to convert the Mask of Winters, an angry solar ghost, to immaculacy. No, there isn't. He is opposed to your religion on several fundamental levels. <laughs> yes. Oh, you've got to give him points for trying. I, 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 I think I, someone I, wants him dead and has given him the idea. Yeah. I probably. blame Chedjop. <laughs> you always do. Yes. <laughs> Next up, we get Sad Ivory, who is the saddest and the most unfortunate and the most wonderful sidereal. I have ever met and is the foundation for the single funniest series of events that you could ever have happen in your game. She's described as immaculate first, sidereal second. That's right, folks. She actually bought it. She was brought up in it, so... Yeah. She was fostered yeah. in one of the Order's temple and had a crisis of the faith when she learned that the whole thing was being puppeted by Sids. Yes. Then joined the Bronze Faction anyway. <laughs> Well, it's the it's the one that most closely aligns with the Immaculate Order. Yes, because they wrote it. Yes. Can you really imagine someone who has been devotely immaculate for all of their mortal life joining the gold faction? Really? No, but I can imagine them being the sort of, um, what do you call them, Ronin Sids that they talk about in the Sidereal book. Yeah, of, I suppose. I'm not playing your game, Chair Job. I disagree yeah. with you. 
Well, she kind of needs direction. She's, mm. she's kind of portrayed as a workaholic. So having someone outside of her to give her a framework is probably a good thing. Because, yeah, she just she works, she trains, and she fights. That's about all that she ever did for a good while. Yeah, she's got no friends, she's got no circle. We now get to the reason that she's the most wonderful sidereal ever because of what this can set up. Chejop and all the loom and all the maidens, I blame you for this. So, she had a friend called Red Osprey. She loved them. Red Osprey was unfortunately a member of the gold faction. And some, some smarmy little goblin up in the bureau decided to use her as the executioner. Yes. And make her kill her most darling and beloved friend with tears in her eyes, then they then had the gall to rush it under the rug as an accident. Yes, because Red Osprey was tasked with looking after a solar that Sad Ivory was given the task of eliminating. And yes, they went and fought and she did her job as a good immaculate. And after that, perhaps understandably, she went a bit self-destructive and she's gone off to become an ascetic, desperately trying to justify it to herself. This, ladies and gentlemen, in the SID and the Bureau as the CIA sort of thing, is how you get the rogue operative burning the house down from the inside story happening. Yes, Yes, I mean... And she's completely justified. Chejop, you ordered her to kill her best friend. (laughs) You absolute sociopath. (laughs) Oh, there's... Yeah, you've just got nothing but just... Oh, just Sad Ivory is just a beautiful, beautiful mess. Back in the day when Rakanthulio's servants were actual sidereals, back in the iteration where they were implied to be sidereals that were corrupted. Yeah. This is who would go to him. Yes. And she'd be right. Yes. Yes, that would. She would be an absolutely fantastic sort of third party in in something that actually got Thulio involved, and just trying to square off against heaven. Given how Gatimian's actually working, given how Thulio is, I can see him absolutely puppeting her and taking advantage of the yeah. whole she needs direction thing. It's entirely on brand for him. And actually, no, I don't think he'd puppet her. And I'll tell you why I don't think he'd puppet her. Do you remember why Rakan Thulio has a beef with the Order? Yes, he didn't like his destiny. Do you know what part of it he didn't like? Oh, sugar, yes. Yeah, yeah Chejop had his girlfriend killed. Yes, it's the exactly the same. Chejop killed his girlfriend. Oh, wow, yes. Yes, okay. Behold the right hand of Thulio. Yes. Sad ivory. Yes, that will totally fly. <laughs> and or the agent on the inside. Yeah. Oh, but anyway, after all that excitement, we have an example of a god who, well, an exigent, sorry, who buys into Immaculacy and is doing what they can to go along with it. Tall Cypress, the Wrath of the Woods, is the chosen of Yagumo, a forest good on of the Blessed Isle. He's kind of held up as a poster child of how exigents should serve the Order because as well as it complying entirely and to extent enforcing the Immaculate Calendar, he uses all his abilities to help the order he can commune with trees and he uses that to help direct wild hunts and also informs on forest spirits and that sort of thing as well as doing the thing of defending peasants from bandits that hide out in forests is the more neutral good thing to do and 
he um, has lived long enough himself to be an object of veneration by fertility cults, which he personally tries to put down. <laughs> I mean, he's just, it, it says kindly and and just gently doing it. He's not killing people who want to worship him. It's just kind of sitting them down and with a nice cup of tea and saying, well, no, I'm not actually worthy of worship. I, I can't make you have children. I mean, I have seven rivers uh, who is interesting mostly because he led a rebellion back in Realm Years 465, uh, claiming that the Empress had lost the Immaculate Dragon's favour because of three years of drought, and he thinks this is Imperial China and the Mandate of Heaven works by natural disasters. Yes! <laughs> so he refused to work, claiming that the Empress should materialise food for them. And convinced a bunch of peasants to do the same, moreover. And so then... Uh, the true agents of holiness, House Ragara, just imported a load of grain and then said, see, food's here, <laughs> and dismantled his whole thing. <laughs> Pretty much, and then got him discredited as an anathema, or he was discredited as an anathema by the Order, explicitly cast out, but never actually caught. And they'll hear sightings every once in a while, even now, that claim that Seven Rivers is still around somewhere, which... I mean, apart from being a fantastic Robin Hood figure, is just, yes, Seven Rivers probably is a lunar, if there's any credence to the rumours whatsoever. None of them have ever been substantiated at all. That's the one... See, you're reading it as a lunar, which, yeah, okay, that's a feasible way you could avoid the order catching you. Flip side, the other kind of person that could tell when they're coming for him. Behold, <laughs> Seven Rivers, the left hand of Thulio. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, it's also worth pointing out that no one who has tried to catch Seven Rivers has ever actually seen them. So they could be absolutely anything. And finally, Kathak Satod, who was a wild hunter, storied ex-military man. He's 276 nowadays, with so legends written about him. Yes. He basically went off to have a career with the legions, retired, and then went off to join the Wild Hunt afterwards. He served the Office of Harmony chapter of the Wild Hunt for 40 years, serving very dutifully, killing lots of anathema, and got to the rank of Ostury. We said earlier that it's rare for one of the secular members of the hunt to get to high office. Sir Todd managed it, despite his actual convictions, which I know you're yeah. just wanting to he's, talk about. He's got the most correct opinions in the realm. <laughs> He believes that the realm is corrupt and should, by all rights, die. But he's duty-bound to uphold it. I love how ridiculously samurai House Kathak is. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, so he's, he basically sees duty as his sole reason for existing. And so he's just carrying on. I'm seeing now the Civil War. There's the fires rising. And there's this weary old man standing there drawing his sword against you. Yes, he's actually set noted as saying he actually probably wants some of the anathema to burn the place down, but can't bring himself to support them. And it's just, this is what I do. I will kill you because this is what I do and what I've always done. You might be yeah. right. I might agree with you entirely, but I'm still going to kill you. And that's oh, the samurai. It's just a really, really interesting set of motivations for a wild hunter, really. And that, I think, is about it. We would normally at this point go into holdings, but I don't think that we've... Um, we've they don't got really hold territory yeah. in the same way. No. 
we can cover um, particular variances of the Immaculate Faith. Now you've got the basics. Uh, we can cover the variances when we get to those locations, and we can point you back to this episode if you want to know why they're divergent. Yeah. So, like, like I mentioned before, do away where dragons are gods, or the Sisterhood of Pearls, uh, which has Cathak Luther. Yes, pretty much, where there's just immense amounts Stapled of Stapled five protestations to the wall. <laughs> Yes, or the palm tree, depending on where they are, because that's how I imagine the Sisterhood of Pearls out in the West. Yeah. But we'll cover them a bit in a bit more detail when we get to them. I know we brought them up before, but we will cover them again when we cover the West in a bit more detail. But that is it for now. Thank you ever so much for joining us for this particular lore episode. It, um, hang around for the next episode in your podcast feed for the Hooks episode. And well, For those of you that don't listen to the Hooks episodes, the next episode bar one going to be our realm roundup where we talk about all the little bits that didn't fit into somewhere before and the scarlet empress yes this is going to be your miscellaneous realm episode where i think tangents will probably make up the bulk of the episode which isn't talking about the empress i'll ramble about how the empress sold her own daughter to literal demons for fun yeah in the meantime if you've liked what you're listening to please do drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com or if you have any questions anything particularly you want us to look at we'd love to hear from you if you like what you're hearing please do leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're um, you're listening on just let us know what we're doing well what we're doing badly and we will absolutely either try to improve or carry on doing it and if you want to support us do drop us some kickbacks through the drive through rpg affiliate links which are either in the description of the video or in the show notes of the podcast depending on where you are consuming this because we are now in the process of going to go multi-platform at some point we are video podcast as of this recording but we will wind up on youtube sometime soon um but in the meantime, thank you ever so much for listening. We do hope you enjoy this very instruct, very it kind of, it felt a lot more instructional than usual, <laughs> wander through uh, the Immaculate Order. So thank you ever so much for cracking open the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny with us. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny, an exalted podcast presented by Aramithius and Rails. Check out the show notes and story seeds from this episode at wondrousatlas.wordpress.com and if you have any questions, drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. The opening music for this podcast is Travelling to the Blessed Isle by James Semple and the closing music is Exploring Creation, also by James Semple. Both tracks are taken from the album Exalted, Dreams of the Second Age and are property of Onyx Path Publishing, used with permission. Great, I, I get to sound like I'm smart this episode. Whoa. Just because I, I have I have the regional knowledge. We've been attacked by Sidereals, dear listener. They don't <laughs> no. want us to continue. Next up we have the breath of Heshiesh. Heshiesh. Put, the breath put of your, Heshiesh. Put your teeth in. Yeah. For the inevitable outtakes compilation that comes into series, dear listeners, this episode is being viciously assaulted. <laughs> it's horrible. It's horrible. They don't want us telling you the truth about the Immaculate Order. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to suppress. They yes. do dams, forest plating, farming, community but management. Forest plating? Plating? Planting. Planting. I can't read. Say that again. <laughs>